G'day, mate. Forty here. I want to talk to you about the rat-a-tat-tat of the machine gun of love. Are you ready for that kind of intense discussion? Because I am. I just had the, the old Christmas dinner with the family. Right? I'm ready to talk about the tangled history of the right to privacy. Right? Terrific book. And I'm looking at page 206 here. And it talks about Frank Harris. Right? Have you guys heard about Frank Harris? And the author says, nobody has ever written the truth like Frank Harris. All right. You think you know about truth? Well, you don't know truth till you've read Frank Harris. He wrote a four-volume autobiographical series, My Life and Loves. Right? He published these multiple volumes in the 1920s. And if you were to read these learned works, you would find out that the author Guy de Maupassant had once visited six prostitutes in one hour. Like, where else would you get that kind of you know, truth, right? You don't just get that in the New York Times, that he had stamina and syphilis, right? Many people have stamina and many people have syphilis, but this author, he had stamina and syphilis, right? That the illustrator Aubrey Beardsley first had sex with his own sister and that the poet Walt Whitman had half a dozen illegitimate children and a perverse taste to boot, right? But the most Graphic of revelations in Frank Harris's repertorial account involved his own real-life non-celebrity conquests such as student Kate, adult Laura, teenager Grace, and many more, all identified in their detailed bodily responses to his physical wooing. So these books were still illegal in the United States and England into the 1960s, right? You can now find them online, My Life and Loves. So some of the vignettes involve girls, some involve sexual assault including one that he describes as his most amatory experience. Friends do not escape his revelations. One real-life teacher shared a deeply personal sexual problem with Frank Harris who and agreed to a bizarre remedy, all of which Frank Harris describes in gruesome and highly embarrassing detail. I went at once in search of a whipcord, tied up his unruly member for him night after night. So Frank Harris argued he had the right to reveal all. Why? Because as a journalist, he always fought for the holy spirit of truth. And here he would once more. He says, I am resolved to dare to speak whatsoever I dare to. Right? He was a First Amendment soldier. And he was going to let loose with his truth. And he was going to educate the young so that they could unleash their machine gun of truth. So just like no one's ever played test cricket like Brendan McCollum, the, the current coach of England, the English cricket team, right? He, he has completely turned around the fortunes of England. So a year ago when I was here, England was just absolutely getting thrashed by Australia. But now we have this you know, whole exciting new brand of cricket, just like with, with Brendan McCollum uh, and, and Frank Harris, right? Truth as we've never seen it before. Now we've got cricket as we've never seen it before. Like, cricket is truth, and truth is cricket. So this is a revolution that's not just going on in cricket, guys. This is going on in all sorts of People ask sports. if they should just try it. And there's no doubt with analytics and money that many sports are changing. As a player of Madden video games and occasional watcher of NFL matches when I was younger, I never understood why teams ran the ball so much. For one, players never got that far. And two, a team that the same players were used repeatedly, meaning...
look, when you run the ball, that just incredibly self-obsessed, all right? You've got the ball and you're just running with it on your own. But is there a shared experience? Like, are you building a bond with some other bloke when you're just running the ball? All right, yeah, sure, you've got, you know, nine, maybe even 10 people blocking for you. But it's just not the same kind of communal shared experience with, with energy that you get from passing the ball. Is there anything more exciting than one bloke passing the ball to another bloke? I mean, there you're building something. You're creating something. You're developing something. You're sharing an experience, all right? You just can't pass the ball to yourself, all right? I can't throw ball and catch ball, all right? I have to give it myself. I have to let go of my ego, right? Ego, edging God out. I have to let go of my ego if I have the ball, and then I have to pass it to someone else. I have to surrender control, all right? We're, we're talking about when you pass the ball, we're talking about getting rid of the ego at depth, right? This is what happens. You have to give of yourself. You have to let go of your ego and create a bond with another person. And when you create the kind of connection that you get from passing a ball to another person, all right, there's an energy, right? You both develop this emotional energy. I, I challenge you, go out there and start passing the ball to another bloke and have him then pass the ball back to you and tell me after 10, 15 minutes that you don't develop a whole new form of energy. Right? Tell me that you don't develop a connection. And then tell me that from that increase in energy and that increase in connection and that increase in community and that bond with another human being, tell me out of all that, you do not then develop an ethic, a whole morality based on just passing the ball back and forth. I mean, passing the ball is incredibly exciting. Did you see the game today? Wow, what an exciting Christmas Eve game. Dallas Cowboys defeating the Philadelphia Eagles 40-34. to Yeah, sure, the Philadelphia Eagles had their backup quarterback. He still threw for over 300 yards on what used to be regarded as a highly you know, respected Dallas Cowboys pass defense. I mean, just incredible game. And he passed ball, Dak Prescott passed ball. Like, balls are just getting passed all over the field. Did you see the Cowboys were down to third and 30? And Dak Prescott went back to pass. He found T.Y. Hilton for a 52-yard pass play, right? And it, that ball traveled 60 yards in the air. You don't think that Dak Prescott and T.Y. Hilton have developed something special? That there's not a camaraderie from passing the ball 60 yards to another bloke? You don't think that there's a special connection between these blokes that's going to transcend this particular contest? You don't think that they are bonded from this experience and that out of the bond of completing a 60-yard pass, all right, on third and 30, you don't think there's a whole morality and an ethic that develops from committing, you know, a 60-yard pass against the Philadelphia Eagles and just pulling off that exciting 40-34 to 34 victory? So passing the ball... It's about the most exciting thing you can do, right? It's not a selfish, onanistic act, right? Sure, you can stay at home and play with your own ball, right? You can stay at home and run around with your own ball, but you need someone else to pass the ball, right? We need to bring people in. You know, people who catch other people's passes are the luckiest people in the world. And you provide a good pass to someone else, they're going to feel obliged to send a good pass back to you. And soon there's this wonderful symphony 
of arcing, you know, beautiful spirals passing back and forth between two blokes as you run around and you recapture the glory of youth. You go long, you do a button hook, right? You do a medium route. I mean, it's just a wonderful symphony that's going on when you pass the ball. Yeah, it's risky, but love is risky. Eros is risky. Sex, intimacy, connection, relationships, having children, getting married, passing the football. They're all risky, all right? But no risk it, no biscuit, as, as Tom Brady's old coach used to say, right? No risk it, no biscuit. We have to learn to open ourselves up to passing the ball. And this is a revolution that's not just sweeping cricket. It's not just sweeping the National Football League. It's also sweeping the National Basketball Association, where they're shooting more three-point shots. So teams are risking more than ever before to score more than they ever have before. Right? You miss all the shots you never take. Right? This is true for life, for love, for business. Right? So let's get more information here about the revolution going on in sports. That they would get worn out. They'd give these players huge contracts and then run them till they couldn't run. But I didn't know anything about the NFL. So I figured the sports first billion dollar baby knew something I didn't. But since the year 2000, teams have thrown the ball a lot more. So now I wonder if they were just stuck in an old way of looking at the game and protecting the ball. Because as they've started to throw it more, they've started to gain more yards per play. And it's changed the sport. Like the fact that people started calling the NFL basketball on grass. This was because... Don't you want to gain more yards per play in your life? Isn't it time that your love life got more yards per play? Isn't it time that your earning life started getting more yards per play? Well, you can't get more yards per play running the ball. This is not just something you can do on your own. We need other people. We need to pass the ball to others. There's an exciting revolution going on in sports, in life, in love. Don't miss out. Because when the quarterback started throwing the ball in the air more, coupled with extra spacing and nonstop movement, it meant the sport was more like basketball with its one-on-one -on -one action. Don't you want more extra space in, in your life? Don't you want more one-on-one -on -one action? Pass the bloody ball, mate. And crazy cross-court running. Of course, basketball had its own revolution. When the league was merged with the old ABA, that led to the three-point line, which had a slow start. But then over the years, you know what started to happen? Teams worked out that three points were worth more than two. This was a risk worth taking, but the players had to adapt as well. This little blip in the middle was when they moved the line closer, but you can see almost every year there are more three-pointers shot in basketball. And there are patterns in test cricket as well. If you look at runs per 12 over and the average of each wicket, they spent 30 years following each other pretty closely. That was until ODI. Okay, so let's get back to learning about Frank Harris, My Life and Loves. Why was this book so dangerous? How did this this bloke, you know, give us truth that we'd never seen or heard before? From there, things moved rapidly. And it wasn't long before Laura was inside Harris's hotel room, admiring his pyjamas. My God. Needless to say, during the act of love, Laura was transported to heights of ecstasy she had never before experienced. Frank Harris. Clinging to Harris and crying out in Italian. But Harris was disappointed by her lack of adventurousness and the nagging doubt that she was not a virgin, and presumably must have given herself to the American before himself. That said, in the weeks that followed, under his tutelage, Laura learned to fully express herself in the boudoir and make the most of her extraordinarily flexible body, the result of doing Swedish exercises every morning, which proved most invigorating for both parties. 
Harris pauses in his reminiscences at this point to take vocal issue with the gluttonous dining habits of the British upper classes, based upon his attendance at a banquet where the haphazard feeding frenzy of a room full of blue bloods trying to eat turtle soup would have shamed pigs at a trough. As a journalist, Harris met and interviewed Charles Gordon before he set off on his ill-fated expedition to the Sudan. He considered him too pious and sure of himself, and General Wolseley, who led the attempt to rescue him at Khartoum. He considered him too lightweight with little personality. He also made the acquaintance of the art critic John Ruskin, and the two discussed pre-Raphaelite art and what one should do when finding a wife one did not love romping on the settee with a legendary painter, in this case John Everett Millet. He also struck up a friendship with another cultural titan, the author and wit Oscar Wilde. The two would often venture into London's literary salons to admire whoever was speaking and occasionally mock and heckle them, as only Oscar could. When asked by Harris to comment on the fact that George Bernard Shaw seemed to have no enemies, Wilde responded by observing, He's not prominent enough yet for that. Enemies come with success, but then you must admit that none of Shaw's friends like him. Which was hysterical. As for Laura, she had gone to America with her plump mother and insisted upon sending Harris photographs of herself in a bathing costume, which drove him to emotional distraction. On her return to England, Harris surprised her at lunch in the Charing Cross Hotel, but on bursting into her salon found, like Ruskin before him, that she was engaged in more than conversation with another gentleman on a sofa. He had his arm around her shoulders. Heartbroken, Harris returned to his lodgings and found some small solace between the sympathetic thighs of his Irish maid, who afterwards served him a dinner of cold grouse. After giving Laura strict instructions never to be in such a compromising situation with another gentleman ever again, he agreed to resume their relationship, marvelling at how love could weaken even the strongest manly resolve. At the conclusion of his diatribe, they made love passionately. Harris posing Laura in a variety of enticing positions for his own edification, while quizzing her constantly on the mysteries of female arousal. In the mid-1880s, Harris established a long-lasting friendship with the French author Guy de Maupassant, whom he had briefly met in Paris some years before. His literary talents and robust manly vigour notwithstanding, what astounded and impressed Harris was de Maupassant's ability to give himself an erection at any time, with just a single thought. On a roadside just outside of Toulon, he demanded of the journalist to look at my trousers as proof of his claim. Confessing to having studied all the venereal diseases in Vienna, the author admitted that he had contracted syphilis in his youth, like most young men of spirit, but that he had seen no sign of it in 15 years, so was convinced that he was cured. When Harris pointed out that recent scientific research in Germany suggested that the disease could lie dormant for many years before striking down its victims in their 40s or even 50s, he rejected their findings by saying that he didn't trust anything that was German. He was dead a few years later. With this sombre warning of the perils of Venus, Harris brings this second volume of his memoirs to a close. The revelations of his next volume, including his memories of a French actress into whose moving carriage he boldly leapt and whose almost superhuman vaginal muscle control caused him to spend in under two minutes, despite his most stringent efforts to prevent it, shall have to remain for another time. Suffice it to say that by the early 1890s, Frank Harris, already a well-travelled, well-connected, much-admired lover and journalistic colossus, is looking ahead to becoming himself one of literature's immortals. Posterity, by name, is Volume 3.
Right, so we're talking here, Frank Harris, my, my life and, and loves, right? And, and you've just never seen truth before and, until you, you've read Frank Harris. Okay, so looking at uh, this book, the, the Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Okay, Upton Sinclair, the famous novelist, he, he said that uh, Frank Harris's autobiography was vile, inexcusable, and poisonous. So one way to put Frank Harris's autobiography into context is it was like the rebel without a shul, you know, excommunicated, right? It, it was like the excommunicated of its time. That's how vile and loathsome it was. So Upton Sinclair calls it vile, inexcusable, and poisonous. And others worried that my life and loves would taint all journalism and become a serious blow to the cause of freedom. And so the American government and the English government banned my life and loves instantly up until the late 1960s. All right, so Frank Harris mainly published his work in Paris. But uh, the government stopped books, the American English government stopped books in customs on the rock solid grounds of obscenity. So privacy required a wronged plaintiff to sue. So today, obscenity remains one of the categories the Supreme Court routinely suggests has very little First Amendment protection. So old copies of My Life at Loves, quite literally warned, must not be imported into England or the USA. Right? And so this ban continued into the 1960s. You had smuggled in copies going for $150 during the, the 1950s. So finally, an expurgated version of Frank Harris's autobiography appeared in an official sense in the United States in 1963. A magazine called Eros published expurgated excerpts, such as, I hardly had any sex thrill with either sister. A federal judge decided they helped to support a criminal obscenity conviction against Eros because given the pros, the judge had little difficulty finding all the requisite elements. All right, there was no saving grace here. Right, no claims of the work's contributions to great literature that had saved books like Lady Chatterley's Lover. So a single autograph volume of My Life and Loves can, can uh, still fetch over $1,000. Right? This series is called a landmark in erotic literature with its blunt, colorful depictions of Frank Harris's sexual exploits. But that's just whitewashing reality, mate. These are graphic, deeply personal stories about people in their most intimate moments, people who had no idea that they'd be revealed in such a way. So as the poet Robert Browning told Frank Harris, when Harris asked about Frank Browning's sex life, there are things that the public has no right to know. So Frank Harris tried to fire his rat-a-tat-tat of his machine gun of sex and freedom of expression, right? So... During the 1960s, 70s, and 80s into the 90s, U.S. courts consistently sided with journalistic outlets giving higher priority to the public's right to know as opposed to individuals' right to privacy. And as a result, all these journalistic organizations created standards. So the New York Times says, we do not inquire pointlessly into someone's personal life. The Society of Professional Journalists developed a national code of ethics for journalists Forty developed a code of ethics for his channel when things started getting too out of control. And then you had bloggers, right? So bloggers were delighted to be blasting through the gates of propriety, but they worried about agreeing on some sort of uh, code of ethical behavior 
because they thought it would curtail their First Amendment freedom to express themselves. And they were right, because in many court cases, the code of ethics of the Society of Professional Journalists would be used against various journalists if they violated an ethics provision. So here we go. Let's, uh, let's find out. Okay, on the one hand, you've got truth as you've never seen it before with Frank Harris. Now you have cricket and gridiron football, the National Football League, and basketball as you've never seen it before. Gridiron cricket began to be taken more seriously, and Australia inspired some faster scoring. Weirdly, instead of averages going down, they went. So ODI cricket is one-day cricket. So a test match typically lasts five days, but ODI cricket is just one day, and 2020 cricket, that just lasts three hours. Oh, and the scoring right now is still historically high, even if it's had a little slide. But my favourite year is 2018, when the pace-playing pandemic starts, and no one is making any runs, but teams are still scoring quickly. Since 2001, the only years under 36 runs per 12 overs is 2021. There are only two years before the year 2001, where 10 tests were played, and that mark was broken. 1982 and 1921. Now it's almost every year. So as we often see in modern sports when the scoring has got faster, it usually means it's with more risks. That means that there's more variance between your results. So sometimes it works and you fly, and sometimes it crashes and you burn. And there's a really interesting thing to look at when you look at fourth innings chases. Before 2000... I mean, isn't that like dating and life and love? All right, when you're vulnerable, all right, you can crash and burn or you can fly. Right? Sometimes this show, it just takes off and flies, right? On the strength of the vulnerability of this show, we just soar into the, into the heavens. Other times, a little too much vulnerability and, and the show crashes. But, you know, I'm like a, a three-point shooter. I'm like someone playing test cricket, but batting like it's a, a 2020 match, right? I'm, I'm like an NFL quarterback, you know, chucking 50-yard passes. That's what we're doing here. And 17, in less than 5% of fourth innings did a team successfully chase 250-plus. And you might be thinking, well, that happens all the time now, thanks to the last two weeks, plus Ben Stokes and Kusil Mendes. In fact, people have been predicting this trend for a long time due to how teams chase in white ball cricket. But finally, it has actually now started to happen. So, white ball cricket is one-day cricket, right? Red ball cricket is test cricket. 2017, it's more than 6% of the time teams are chasing over 250. And it was starting to happen even more frequently before England did it thrice in a month. But they are clearly taking it to a new level. So chases are easier now. However, that's happening at the very same time in one of the biggest batting slumps we've ever had. So test cricket has come to this. Teams are scoring less, but chasing better. I mean, that is modern cricket. Because we have seen teams continually to score quick, even when they lose wickets. A chase of 250 no longer feels like that much, even if a score of 250 is towards the higher end right now. And that's because of what Stokes, Mendes and Bairstow have done. All they need to do is come off for a session, even half a session, and the chase can be over. Welcome to the chase and collapse era. It's also worth remembering that while it feels like England have been terrible for a long time, that isn't quite true. England weren't the world's best team from 2013 onwards. They fell off when Strauss, Trott, KP, Pryor and Swan all left. That is a lot of talent to lose. They also went to a different... Okay, so when I was out here last year, England was terrible. Australia was just wiping the floor with the English cricket team. Now, this year, England has won nine of its last ten test cricket matches. Right? Just astonishing numbers. Right? They've had 22 centuries scored by batsmen. It's their largest haul in any calendar year. 
right? There have been 10 instances where their bowlers have taken 20 wickets, right, in, in a match, right? They suddenly can bat and bowl, right? They're, they're racking up astonishing scores of 400, 500, 600 runs. Their overall scoring rate of 5.5 runs and over during the, the Pakistan series is, is their best ever. I, I don't think there's ever been a test cricket team in a calendar year that has scored over five runs and over. Now England is doing that. Right? So with Frank Harris, you have you had truth like you've never had it before. Now we've got cricket like we've never had it before. Do we not live in the best of all possible times? So this is called basball, all right? It's like total cricket, right? You heard about total football with, with the Dutch, 1974 Dutch team, which finished second in the World Cup underneath uh, Johan Cruyff, all right? So total football meant that there was no set position for any player. They were constantly alternating positions. That It was like a ballet going on on the soccer field. Now, total cricket means that uh, there are no set positions, right? So people are, you know, not used to being wicket keepers, suddenly being thrown into wicket keeping. People are not used to leading out the batting and now leading out the batting. So what was it? 50 years ago, we had the birth of total football with the Netherlands soccer team. Now we've got total cricket. Uh, we, we live surely in, in the best of all possible worlds. I mean, just they've just taken their foot off the pedal, right? No, they're never taking their foot off the pedal, mate, right? So they're telling the players, don't focus on winning and losing, right? Don't focus on playing for the draw because that allows the match situation to intrude too much on your thinking. It distracts from the business of scoring runs and taking wickets. And that's what we're here to do, right? We gather here together. Verily, verily, I say unto you, solemnly, I say unto you, are we not gathered here together to take wickets and to score runs, right? So, England's just never shutting down. It's the most exciting English cricket team ever, right? The the players now in English cricket, uh, they are chasing the idea of themselves as entertainers and record breakers because any other vision for them would uh, minimize their confidence. And I'd like to think that, that we're doing the same thing here. So people are not getting criticized for playing some adventurous attacking batting stroke and they, they get out. Economy rates for bowlers don't matter because they don't care how many runs they surrender. They just want the bowlers focused on taking wickets, right? We don't want to discourage them from adopting appropriate attacking lengths in their bowling. So they are embracing the fear. They're no longer living in anxiety. They think we're entertainers, we're record keepers. This is an innovative approach. It's liberating the English players. It's disrupting their opponents. The, the, the English batsmen are taking their best shots with power, right? The, the, the less orthodox the shots, the better. Uh, faster bowlers are just digging in and flinging it. The emphasis is that taking 20 wickets, just bowling out the other side. It's not on trying to be economical with how many runs the other side gets. And then Ben Stokes, the new English cricket captain. I mean, some of his field settings just have to be seen to be believed. We're talking arcs of short mid-wickets, short cover, leg slips, but no conventional slips. You've got a long stop. Right? Sometimes he had five or six slips and gullies. He, sometimes he's changing fields several times and over, and over is uh, eight balls. I mean, he's just playing on the batsman's mind, asking them to do something they don't want to do. 
So he's not waiting three overs to change the field. Right? He's changing it every over. He's putting people under pressure. So England have become massive disruptors. They're just flouting convention at every turn. You know, alarm bells are going on throughout world cricket at how England is playing. And so Australia will be visiting England in June for another for another test match series called the Ashes. This has been going on for 140 years. So as a matter of pride, Australia will be reluctant to adapt their tactics for anyone. But trying to cut off the English batsman's oxygen supply of boundaries with deep fields seemed like an obvious first step. So this should be one of the most compelling test cricket series of modern times, a clash of styles and egos. England just making extraordinary progress under their captain, Ben Stokes, playing baseball. Okay, what else we got? We got some commentary here by Robert Wright. He is not happy. He's not happy with Elon Musk. Remember that picture that Elon Musk tweeted where he's got like a, uh, a video game gun on his nightstand? It's uh, this thing from uh, Catherine Maddox. She writes, on Elon's guns and cans of Diet Coke tweet, Mickey, Bob is right. You know I adore you. She's talking to you. But trust me, Bob wins this one. When I saw that tweet, my gut reaction was, wow, this is a repulsive show of support for guns by the head of an influential social media site. Ooh. And it conveyed a bro-like, casual take on a serious, very serious and consequential topic. Given the state of gun violence and mass shootings in America, it was deeply disturbing. I'm like most people in America, in friends, if a little quirky and weird. Uh, it made me want to get off Twitter for good. And by the way, most people saw that photo and thought it was a real gun. Bob wins. I rest my case. Um, uh, I thought you made a good case. Somebody Other, else said, somebody else said I won, but the, the, the others who disagree said, well, but it was obviously a fake gun. And I must admit, it didn't, I, my first reaction was, oh, that's was not, oh, that's just a fake gamer gun. But I, my first reaction was, uh, gee, Elon Musk is so paranoid, he keeps a gun by his uh, bedside for protection, which is perfectly legal. I don't think he was encouraging people to go out and buy guns and shoot people. No, but in the current yeah. environment, I mean, for example, a guy replied to him and said, and got like a ton of retweets and said, you know, my daughter was killed by a gun and posted a picture of her. And and by the way, Elon himself had tugged on the same heartstring not long ago. Remember when he said, uh, what was it? Well, he said, I held my dying, you know, he lost some child at childbirth, I guess. Did you see this? Yes, his wife now says she was holding a child, his ex-wife. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, what, what, what was the issue? Oh, it was why he was getting rid of Alex Jones. Because Alex Jones yes, trivialized the death of children at Sandy Hook. And, yes. and, and I just thought about that, like, he, he was saying, the reason I'm making this ruling is because of the way it affects me personally. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's not the way it should be. If you, you know, you don't, you know, that's not the way the Supreme Court rules. Like, oh, by the way, this one thing happened to me and it really got He's not to the me. Supreme Court. He's the major deity of Viennese coffee house and he's still yeah. troubled by the death of his child. So what? He's running a free. Okay. So this is Mickey Kaus's understanding of the Elon Musk era on Twitter that uh, Elon Musk is like uh, someone running a Viennese coffee house. And so you can't diss the proprietor who, who's operating this, this coffee house. But within the, the rubric of this particular coffee house, there's more freedom of expression. It's like a high-level salon. And, and I think that's accurate. And so Robert Wright here is presenting the classical liberal approach that you should always calibrate what you're saying to how it could affect or how it could come across to many different audiences. So it should always be reflexive understanding how what you're putting out there reflects on you, how it may be experienced by other people. Right? This is the modern liberal approach, highly reflexive, 
highly considerate of how different audiences may experience what you're, you're saying or tweeting, as opposed to the traditional approach, which is a man's home is his castle. Man has a right to say what he wants, to say what he feels. He doesn't have to calibrate everything he has to say, depending on how it might be interpreted by a hundred different audiences. Right. So one is the traditional conception of the self. It's like a man's home is his castle. He has the right to <clears throat> say what he wants. Then there's a modern liberal secular approach that you should always be calibrating what you say to how it might affect different audiences. So it's like the, the difference between old fashioned, you know, Lord of the Manor morality, where the Lord of the Manor gets to say what he wants to say in his, his own manner versus court morality. Right, where you have to constantly calibrate what you're saying according to the changing whims of court and how it may be received by different factions of court. So the modern left liberal conception of the self and how we should operate is that we should operate as though we're a court. And we should consider how different you know, factions, different audiences may feel or interpret or understand what we're saying as opposed to traditional lord of the manor morality where a man in his own manner has the right to say you know, what he feels and what he believes and gets to tweet a picture of what's on his nightstand without worrying about how all these different audiences will respond. Okay. Your place than it was before. Well, anyway, it turns out, okay. So back to uh, David Bauer writes, this episode, wow, Bob really got under my skin in this one. His panic over Elon Musk's tweet was too much. It reminded me of the concerned parents throwing a fit over seeing Janet Jackson's breast at the Super Bowl. That reminds me. I'd like to say a few words about Janet Jackson's breast at the Super Bowl. The thing that bothered me about that, Nathan. Was it encouraged guys to do that to girls? Yeah, it was like stylized rape. And what's what's interesting is uh, it got no blowback, I think, from the feminist community. This is like pre-Me Too. I wonder if the reaction would be different. Because everybody took it as a conservative versus liberal thing on kind of free speech. And, you know, oh, you're freaked out by a nude image. Oh, you're, you know, and blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that. Although, you know, I think that's a little weird, too, at halftime in the Super Bowl, frankly. But, uh, you know, it's going all over the world to all these different cultures. And they're forming their, you know, whatever. But but no, it was the rape aspect. So, yeah, David, you're right. I, I'm freaking out over that. I'm freaking out over Elon. David says, have some faith in humanity, Bob. Sorry, I don't. So there. Um, we haven't talked about this Janine Ganesh essay on Twitter, which... I'm happy. It, it, it's it's almost a month old, so it's over a month old. So uh, I'm happy to save it for another day if you want. No, go ahead. Yeah, Janet is columnist for the Financial Times, always billed as the finest columnist on planet Earth uh, because he he has an incredible range. He can talk about foreign policy, he can talk about economic policy, he can talk about high literature, uh, and uh, he does it all. Um, he's a very good writer, and he quit Twitter. Uh, and he said uh, he tried to ask himself why did he quit. It wasn't because uh, you know the usual reasons that he was attacked. Or it's vapid," uh, he said. Uh, he said the thing that only somebody who sees himself as an incredibly high-status writer would write. Said the site reeks of low status, and what? not because. And not because. Sorry, he said that. He said that. He said the unsayable. He, he took the, the snob attack on Twitter, and it's. He admits there's a lot of good on Twitter. Much of Twitter is conducted in a certain voice, or what might be called a home key. Some would describe it as twee or beta, but it is easier to cite examples than to name it. Here are a few quaint bios. He enthusiasts. Cultural references to the science fiction or superhero genres, self mockery about bad dates and social awkwardness, jargon, performative in quotes, gaslighting that people with healthy a healthy distance from politics don't lose, don't use, or understand. The site is often likened to a town square, but evokes more closely a pub on quiz night. There is that sense of people finding camaraderie and having no better options. <laughs> there is some sublime humor on there, but it is the humor of consolation. Uh, this guy so sounds kind of like an asshole. Well, he, he has the balls to be an ass to, to make the asshole argument, which is alpha males don't do Twitter. Uh, and although you can see that some do. Uh, 
And I just think he's get. He, I disagree with him, but he's getting at something. There is sort of like this, like you had nothing better to do on Saturday night than tweet aspect to certainly my tweets. And, uh, and he, he admits that he's. Yeah. And uh, Glib Medley says there's probably an analogy available with Twitter manners and how roughing the quarterback has changed. So the new Twitter manners, you know, favored by the globalists, by the liberals, by the leftists, by the, you know, the moderns, by the secularists, is that you should always consider you know, how your tweets come across. And so for people on the liberal left, right, the moderns, the secularists, right, they have their own partisan perspective, right? They think they're above and beyond partisanship, but they're, they're not. It's just that the, the traditional, the, the conservative have a cruder hero system, right? We believe in God and country, for example. We believe in our religion. We believe in our community. We believe in our people. This is a, a crude hero system. But the liberal left, right, they have their own hero system. It's, uh, it's, it's all about, you know, what, what's sophisticated, uh, what, you know, shows openness to, to n- new experience. It's about, you know, what shows elevated taste that uh, distinguishes them from the hoi polloi, right? So everyone's got a hero system. But people on the, the secular left, the liberals, they don't think they have a hero system. They think they're beyond all hero systems. They think they're beyond partisanship. They just think they're pragmatic. They just think that they are you know, unbiased pursuers of the truth, but they are just as partisan as the right. They also have their hero system, right? But uh, their his- hero system is designed around, you know, esoteric tastes, you know, kale for, for salad, uh, art that uh, doesn't have, you know, any kind of definitive message or, or ending, right? They have their own, you know, sophisticated partisan perspectives, but they don't, they don't recognize it. So here is this Financial Times columnist saying, you know, he's quitting, he's quitting Twitter because the hoi polloi are using Twitter. You know, the regular people really are, are using Twitter. It, it's not it's not in, for the elites, and and he really just wants to be with the elites. He saw himself shifting into this morass of midwit, midwit beta humanity, uh, which is why he quit. Uh, but the other thing is, in addition, in addition, the reason the only two, the, I'm sure there are hundreds of reasons to attack this, and it's worth reading just because it's so well written. But uh, it has uh, first there are a lot of alpha males who are on Twitter, alpha females. My test is Maggie Haberman, best uh, you know the best chronicler of Trump. You you caught her in some egregious bullshit a couple of weeks ago, but basically she's the person who found out what was going on in the Trump White House, and she also provides a valuable public service in terms of uh, if, if you wanted to find out what was happening now, what happened today, uh, you know, I was trying to tell a friend where they should go to find out what happened today, and I couldn't come up with anything better than just go to Maggie Haberman's Twitter feed and read what she wrote. So, you know, the thing she retweets. So, she's better than the Drudge Report at that. Uh, if she leaves, Twitter will be really the, the uh, you know, much more of a place of beta humanity, but um, the other thing is, people find out things on Twitter that they can go be alpha about. Megan Hayman finds out things on Twitter. Uh, I bet Janan Ganesh uh, found out things on Twitter. What do you mean that right they can about. go be alpha about? In other words, uh, if I were an alpha male, I would read this thing about the Fed, this Fed study that people are quitting the labor force because of low status, and I would go write a powerful attention-getting tweet or column about it mm-hmm. if I were a columnist. And, but I would only have found out about it because of Twitter. Actually, I found out about it in John Ellis's Substack, but let's, he tweeted about it too. Uh, you know, so alpha males need the info that is on Twitter, and Twitter is an incredibly efficient uh, conveyor of that sort of info. So the idea that alpha males should get off Twitter because they will sink into betaness 
uh, has these are two-edged swords, they will also find less ways to show how alpha they are. And they'll eventually become out of it and be criticized as aging boomers and why doesn't George Will retire already? <laughs> uh, George Will has actually, actually had some really good recent columns, so he's a bad example. But um, um, I, li- I like Twitter. I mean, it has a lot of potential. It's just that it, it, it has this almost inherently tribalizing feature, and that's this, you know, dynamic. And that's, you know, if you look... He's not talking about that. I know he's not, but I'm just okay. explaining. Uh, yeah, no, his, he's just being a fucking snob. So for Robert Wright, tribal is bad, right? For Robert Wright, a typical secular liberal lefty modernist, tribal equals bad. But there's no inherent reason why Robert Wright's worldview or the left liberal modern secular perspective is any inherently superior to the tribal perspective, right? There's nothing inherently good or bad about being tribal. In some circumstances, being tribal is an adaptive response, right? There's a reason so many people have a tribal response, and that's because it is evolutionarily adaptive in many circumstances. In other circumstances, a less tribal approach is more adaptive. The world is constantly changing around us. Sometimes a right-wing, tribal, selfish, self-centered, uh, my family, my extended family, my tribe first before you know every other group. That is the most adaptive response. In other circumstances, openness to new experience, you know, openness to strangers, be, being willing to learn new ways of organizing communities is a more adaptive response. That's why we have the left impulses and the right impulses. Both impulses have proved evolutionarily adaptive. It, it's just you know, funny that, uh, you know, Robert Wright doesn't recognize that his own fear and loathing of tribalism is just another partisan approach. He thinks that the non-tribal cosmopolitan approach is beyond partisanship, is is beyond tribalism, but it's just a different form of tribalism, right? It's the tribalism of the quinoa class, of the kale class, of the university-educated class, of the globalist class, I don't give a shit. He's just like, what a dick. I mean, like, like, oh, pub night. So you, you walk into a pub and you see people having fun doing the trivia quiz or whatever, and you turn your nose up at him and like, oh, I bet they don't have a column at the FT. This guy just sounds like a total dick. But uh, maybe he's not. Maybe I'm wrong. He's just sounding like one in this moment. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 go ahead. I'll go ahead and reply to that. Defend him. He no, I was going to read another sentence that confirmed your suspicion. Yeah, that's like, what I want to hear. Bring it on. Instagram and LinkedIn don't have this problem. Both groups, people on those sites, intuit something about life that is often lost on more outwardly intellectual tweeters. Projecting success, even when it doesn't exist, can work. Swagger can be self-fulfilling. Twitter doesn't swagger. It's Wait, Twitter ironic. doesn't swagger? There's a ton of performative shit on Twitter. What does he mean? Well, he means that it doesn't, he's, he's, he's thinking that performative, the performative stuff doesn't it's faux, carry, it's faux swagger. It's not, carry, enough, carry enough actual projection of success. No, he's just missing that part, I think. There's a ton of swagger on Twitter. It's one of the most annoying parts of Twitter. People but like him of, swaggering. But people, I don't know if he swaggered on Twitter, but people we follow don't swagger. And yet people he would I have swagger. Who, who? I'm not going to name names. People you follow, like, like not in a hate, not in a uh, hate watch uh, way. No, I mean, let's see. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of performative. A lot, a lot, not, I mean, we're all performative to some extent. One of the swag, well, here's a big swagger. The guy who did Lawfare and all when Trump was going to oh, go down. Oh, Ben Wittes. Oh my then god. Then he had a little cannon that went off. Boom. He's so insufferable. Trump is going down. He's actually a very smart guy. He's nuanced, pretty smart, but, yeah. But uh, and I, I, think, I assume you'd like him if you saw him in person. But his Twitter, his Twitter uh, persona was swaggering. No, it's it's uh okay. So he's just wrong on this. Although, he's also the guy went out, you know, shown this some light on the uh, Russian embassy. Uh, to, anyway, what's um, this? 
he, I talked to you about, I mentioned this. He, he, right. he, he has some spotlight that, that, that right. some pattern on the Russian embassy. Right. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, the lawfare is just like blob central. Here's yeah. a, here's, yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah. Also what he says about Twitter. These are narrators of events, not initiators of them. The elite don't tweet, I want to say, but some of them do, including its new owner. It just happens to cheapen them. Um, I wouldn't say it's bringing out the best in Elon. <laughs> it's humanizing him. Yeah. Um, anyway, that, uh, to get back to him, you know, people wonder, you know, there are people who continue, I think, to mistake my critique of Elon as an ideological one. It's really not. And uh, Glib Medley said, 40 is identifying with the hoi polloi with his pronunciation of uh, quinoa. Quinoa. Quinoa, right? I think that's that's the proper way. Quinoa. Quinoa. Right, what's the uh, British, British? Wait, that's the British pronunciation, so let's switch to the American pronunciation. Quinoa. Oh, it's the same. Quinoa. Although I disagree with him, and, and I reacted to his gun tweet, is ideologically twin, tinged, but uh, my the larger critique is I actually had some hope. I mean, I was not uh, – basically, I worried that he would make Twitter worse, but I thought I might be wrong about that. I was not wrong, and and because and, my big thing is we don't need more tribalizing dynamics right now at this point in American history, and he's making it more tribal, not less. Wait, you said it, you said he- right, so tribal is simply you know equated with low-class, primitive, medieval – now, hidebound by all these ancient, outdated, old-fashioned ways of organizing life. This is the modern liberal left humanist secularist perspective. He's made Twitter worse? Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. I think the left now, now knows that it has to actually talk to the right. Maybe What's I'm, the evidence of that? I have no evidence. I'm just uh, fantasizing about no, I think it's the outcomes. opposite. He's alienated. He's giving the left more reason than ever to think, uh, you know, no, because he, he is, um, you know, he's the new Trump. He's a person who 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 can uh, who can make you hate whole new things because they're associated with it. It's like the way the left suddenly became that. vehemently anti-Russian because Russia became associated with Trump. Musk but, is like that. He's got, he's gonna he's gonna stigmatize the right even further in the eyes of the left. By the way, he has contributed a lot to the recent surge of interest in negotiations. So not has completely he? evil. Yeah, he tweeted that thing. This is my proposed negotiated settlement for for Ukraine, and he got a lot of shit for it. And that reminds me, I got a, tomorrow. I'm debating. I did this thing. I do every once in a while, but sometimes it's not. okay. So. I mean, spending a lot of time with with family and relations and with other people, and it's—I mean, there's something about you know family and Christmas and familial obligations really cut into my live streaming. But uh, at least we're here together, and uh, let's have a look more closely at this Financial Times columnist, Janan Ganesh. The real reason to get off Twitter isn't the abuse or the misinformation; it just reeks of low status. Yeah, but low status according to whom? We all have different ways of uh, understanding status and and seeking status. The reason to quit is not the nastiness, but the opposite. Twitter is a comfort zone. Well, when people are pretty harsh about things, you you tweet it. How is that a comfort zone? What is an original but plausible thought about Xi Jinping? A China hobbyist on a lunch break at a bank will tweet a thread's worth of them. So no, Twitter isn't vapid. Nor are other criticisms of it much fairer. There are some spiteful users, true, but the taunts of strangers, not threatening, should be water off a duck's back. It is a font of misinformation, yes, but the demand for fake news, that is, human credulity, is more troubling than its supply. Why then did I quit? Why have I encouraged others to follow, regardless of Twitter's owner? Years passed before I could define the answer in clear terms. The site reeks of low status. Do you agree with this? I... I don't agree, but I love it that someone's making this case because I think status is the most important 
part of, of daily life that gets the least honesty and the least attention. And not because it is free. Much of Twitter is conducted in a certain voice, a certain home key, twee or beta. Right? There, there are quaint bios, tea enthusiasts. There are cultural references to science fiction or superhero genres, self-mockery about bad dates and social awkwardness. It depends on who you, you follow. I find follow a bunch of uh, neuroscientists that are not like this. Jargon, performative, gaslighting, that people with a healthy distance from politics don't use or understand. Science is often likened to a town square, but evokes more closely a pub on quiz night. Well, some pubs on quiz night are awesome. There is that sense of people finding camaraderie and having no better options. There is some sublime humor on there, but it is the humor of consolation. You can, I am convinced, catch a certain kind of personality from Twitter. I'm convinced it was happening to me. Instagram is a tease for their pouting selfies and try-hard glamour. LinkedIn users are difficult to take seriously in their bumptiousness, but both groups intuit something about life that is often lost to more outwardly intellectual tweeters. Projecting success, even when it doesn't exist, can work. Swagger can be self-fulfilling. Twitter doesn't swagger. Its gate is an ironic shuffle. Well, here's the thing about irony. It gets nothing done. I, I don't agree with this. I mean, there are a lot of very smart, important, influential uh, voices on Twitter. There is no one trait that links all the high performers in sport, art, politics, commerce that I've had occasion to meet, but the nearest thing is a slightly humorless approach. It is the kind of personality that gets short shrift on Twitter, which is part of the site's charm, but also what leaves it with an anti-aspirational feel. Think of the professions that set the tone of the site. Journalists, comics. These are narrators of events, not initiators of them. The elite don't tweet, I want to say, but some of them do, including its new owner, just so happens to cheapen them. It's, yeah, social media or things you do online, it's very easy to say things that you wouldn't normally say face-to-face. -face. It's easy to share dark things that you normally wouldn't share face-to-face. -face. It's easy to have a grandiose conception of your own abilities that you wouldn't have in face-to-face -face interactions, right? There are perils of the e-personality. But it, it's not just especially on Twitter. There isn't even the consolation that ironic self-effacement is a sign of good and modest character. It often indicates the opposite. Orson Welles once went on a violent rant about Woody Allen, whose timidity he saw as a species of arrogance. Self-mocker, after all, is still talking about the favorite subject. There is such a thing as ostentatious humility, and it is all over Twitter. When not save your reputation that you yourself don't tweet the tweet stuff. You'll be tainted by association on a platform where 812,000 people follow someone pretending to be the Downing Street cat. What is worse, you might join them over time. Long social media use is mind-shaping. Yes, everything we do is mind-shaping. You can, I'm convinced, catch a certain kind of personality from Twitter. Yeah, just doing anything online. Right? All the peer pressure is to be a massive marker of things, including yourself, so you affect that tone until it becomes your personality. The site's reigning atmosphere of domestic mediocrity sucks you in until one night you curl up in front of a TV series and live tweet it. Critics of Elon Musk say that selling the right to a blue tick will make Twitter uncool. Make it uncool. Right. Uh, he, he's already convinced that it's uh, low status and uncool. So I'm glad that this, this Financial Times columnist has uh, made the case. But meanwhile, let's get some Mark Shapiro here talking about 19th century Orthodox Judaism and its response to the rising reform movement with this kind of celebration style of worship. And this one particular Orthodox rabbi is arguing you shouldn't be happy when you're talking to God and confessing your sins.
he explains that no. And if you look in the Shulchan Arach, uh, it's, um, I'll read it for you here. In, uh, let's see. 15th um, century compendium of Jewish law. I forget now where it's, uh, he'll cite it a little later. But it's not, uh, it's, no, what he says is that this is only for before you uh, pray. You're supposed to get have that in your mind. You're supposed to feel good and happy. But not during the actual prayer. And in fact, that's the, that's the Mushon, as I recall. Uh, yeah, he says, uh, yeah, if you look in the Tzadi Gimel, he says, uh, for an hour before you daven, you should, you should, uh, you know, uh, have your mind uh, in a certain way. And then he, it goes on and talks about how uh, you should have simcha. Uh, but this is in the section Kodim Shishtavo, and then you have Simcha going Divrei Talchum Shel Torah. So he understands this all referring to before Davini. And what do you do during Davini? He says as follows: If you go before a human king, he says, if you come before a human king to to fall for your life because you sinned against him. Imagine he says you come to the bottom line of uh, the bottom line. He says if you come before a human king to plead for your life and repent for your sins, and you come before him with uh, musical instruments. He's going to be furious. Can you imagine? You come before the king and you're, you're asking him, please spare our lives, you know, uh, let us live in peace, et cetera, et cetera. And you come with musical instruments, he'll think you're crazy. Uh, what does simcha have to do with when you have bechi, crying, and tachanuni? But in a time where you don't have an other sin, then you can come with sheer. So, for example, at a, at a simcha, at a wedding. But davening, you're going to be happy? No, you need to be uh, quiet and fearful. That's what davening is. And then he says, goes on, certainly when it deals with God. When the base on Migdash was around, he goes on. Uh, uh, when was it possible to do Simcha? You have a Simcha space Shoeva, for instance, uh, uh, etc. Then you had a great Simcha. However, from the day that the base of Migdash was destroyed and no more Ruach HaKodesh and no more Devua, uh, the only way we can repent is through our prayers. And how can you, how can you come before Mashir and Klezemer? It's almost like he's saying you can't come before him singing. Because you, if you're coming before a king and uh, you're, you're pleading for your life, would you sing also? No, you wouldn't sing. But that's his lashon. It's as if the Nesimus is saying, you just, I mean, if you think of prayer this way, that it's just pleading for our life, then what are you singing for? Um, he says, He says, our dominant before God should be no different than our requesting things, praying for our life before a human king. Because only when you're in a chasana, then that's the mitzvah to rejoice. But other times, absolutely not. So he says, there's no question that this is not, God does not want this. And then he goes on to say, that's just during the week. And you can't ever have a musical instrument show. On Shabbos, he goes on that it's certainly, it's forbidden. Vafil b'chola, sorry, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, then, then he does the point I mentioned about, uh, what does it mean, in Omdin Lispalo. Although I don't think that's the pshat, uh, necessarily. I, I'll give you an example of something else. Well, I don't think necessarily what he's saying is the pshat. Here, I'll show you um, he quotes uh, an example where it says, uh, uh, where Abaye was sitting here, and this is Brachos 30b. The Gemara relates, Abaye was sitting before his teacher, uh, uh, Rava, and Rava saw, they should have put an H at the end, uh, it's Rava, and Rava saw that he was exceedingly joyful. He said to Abaye, it's written, rejoice with trembling. One's joy should not be restrained. So, uh, so he's saying, oh, okay, so, this, uh, so he's saying that here you see that uh, you know we shouldn't really have joy, and, and he says the most joy is with klishir. So uh, if uh, Rabbah tells Abaye he shouldn't be so joyful, then Kavachomer we shouldn't uh, have musical instruments that makes us uh, uh, have joy. But I mean, it's, I don't know what one thing has to do with the other. But that's his argument. And then he continues, hey, look, this is a very austere approach to prayer. Can you imagine getting up and telling people today when you pray you shouldn't have simple, you shouldn't have so long, you shouldn't feel as if the sword is hanging, Damocles' sword, you know, is hanging right over you. Uh, that's not uh, what uh, we do. You don't need to walk around with a guitar and a saxophone like you saw two weeks ago or last week to understand. I mean, that we have singing, we get into it this way, uh, and we all know that if we're going before Putin, 
you know, he decides to turn on the Jews and have to send uh, Rabbi Lazar there, you know, to try to, you know, request mercy on the Jews. Uh, he's not going to come with and start singing before Putin or anything like that. But music is not something new. We've been singing music for a long time. It's not just in the days of Migdash. Uh, uh, but you see how his conception of prayer. And then he goes on and talks about the importance of belief based on faith, not seichel. We don't need to get involved with that. And then he concludes, and this will be the last thing, oops, uh, and this will be the last uh, of the letters we look at today. Let's see, uh, pull it up here on page 80. He concludes as follows. And this is in the Sivos. Uh, most people don't know that in the Sivos. They just know him um, from his halachic writings. They don't know him from uh, this letter. Um, on page 80, he concludes the paragraph uh, beginning, um, where is it? Velo. Just, well, it's not actually the conclusion, but he says Velo. What does he say? Um, listen to this. After explaining how uh, you have to be a good citizen and all this stuff, he says, not just us, the Bani Yisrael, are you know, um, obligated in this, but every nation and language is obligated in this, as we've seen that the, the, the Machus and the Shultonim the, the governments in every Medina are mocked. All governments insist that people be connected to their particular religions. They shouldn't be split up. They shouldn't be divided into different groups where everyone does what they want. Because in this, the whole nation depends on the fact that everyone stays connected to their religion, not make new religions. So already you see here, again, this point we have, he's saying that uh, the reformers are, they're not loyal. They're creating a new sect. That's something dangerous. The government won't want this. So you, we can use this to shut them down. But then he goes even further. He says, for all arguments and disputes between one man and another, if there's no witnesses, the only way we can determine who's lying if there's no witnesses is we make them take an oath. And the whole purpose of the oath is only based on whether you believe. What he's saying here is that those who have no religion, namely the reformers, are not regarded as trustworthy people. Their oath in the court of law would not be acceptable. He's saying that the reformers are not can't be good citizens because they don't practice Judaism, they don't practice a real religion, they invent some religion, but that also means that they're a danger to the, to the functioning of society because you can't trust them because uh, when everyone goes to court, you can't believe their oaths because they're not believers. This is like Masira, you could say, but in the reverse, that he's being Masir, the reformers, that he thinks it's okay to be Masir them, to Masir them, to inform on them. And then we conclude uh, in the, the paragraph, the second, last full paragraph, he says, just like we believe that uh, God controls the world, so we believe that the king and the government is chosen, is the chosen one of God. Um, and just like we ask in our prayers that we build the temple uh, so that we can observe the mitzvahs the way we should uh, and uh, you know, receive the shechina again, um, uh, and everyone will be gathered in the land of Israel, so too we request in prayer the, uh, the welfare of uh, the, uh, the kingdom. Because that, that's basic. Uh, we can't observe our religion without uh, a government that uh, you know, runs things smoothly and properly. Uh, and he concludes, uh, in some, in our prayers, there's no opposition to the, uh, the peace of the, the, the Malchus uh, Shaloma. Its peace is our peace. Because the reformers uh, were arguing that uh, we need to say, if we want to be loyal Germans, we don't believe anymore in a return to the land of Israel. Our, Messiah, our Messianic era is here in Germany. And the implication is that um, if you're hoping to be redeemed and brought to the land of Israel, then you're not really a loyal citizen uh, to Germany because your loyalty is to this far off uh, messianic kingdom that's going to come. So you see the Nesivos here says just the opposite, that we are very loyal um, to the government. And this is a response, of course, uh, and an explanation as to why we can pray to return to Zion and still um, be loyal to the government. I, I think it's also you can see that this is like it's very spiritual messianic hope. It's not naturalistic in any way. So we will end here. Um, what we're going to do next class, we have one more letter to really to finish out the book. And that's the Chassim Sofer. And then we're going to move into the Chassim Sofer's arguments, because in many ways, as I said, he is remembered as creating the, uh, uh, the response to the reform. And he has a few letters, and uh, each letter needs to be looked at carefully. We'll begin by looking at the, uh, if you can believe it, uh, uh, Aaron Horan is forced to retract. It's a short-lived retraction, but he retracts, and we'll, uh, we'll see that next class. So now I want to uh, let me take the questions. Um, I really flies um, when we're having fun.
And Barry Hartman says, yeah, the Leventhal book's a phenomenal book. Well, I only read the memoir. Now maybe I think I should read some of his, uh, his sermons as well, but the memoir is nice. And uh, Susanna doesn't think it's cute. Uh, I think I said it's cute. The, uh, when you read polemics, uh, as I do often, it's all cute uh, because I don't take any of them seriously. Uh, so uh, in, in fact, with regard to Schechter, I'll just tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. You say when he reads polemics, he doesn't take any of them seriously. And I think we should have that, that same attitude, like the, the Ben Shapiro polemicist, the George Will polemicist, uh, polemicist of the left, polemicist of the right, most pundits are polemicists. They're cute, all right? They're, they're you know children playing, all right? We don't need to take uh, polemics seriously, all right? It's, it's uh, just silly performance. Okay, so... I'm reading this terrific book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy by Amy Gajda, so former journalist turned university professor. And so she talks about Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson were you know, encouraging or writing all this scurrilous you know, privacy-destroying material about each other. So Hamilton was making the case that uh, Thomas Jefferson was, you know, having sex with his, his slave, selling Hemings. And at this time, there was, there was an offense called truthful libel. So even if you're saying something that was truthful, if it was hurting someone's reputation, right, you could be convicted. So we think, oh, First Amendment is right there at the beginning of the United States. Like we think, oh, a publisher could, you know, publish anything that was, was, was true, the freedom of the press is essential to, to a free state. But in the 18th, 19th century, if a publisher put something out there that was improper, mischievous, right, truthful libel, right, he would have to take the consequences of his own temerity, right? So this included the publication of Embarrassing Truth, a tidbit about a husband who'd been unfaithful and suffered his wife's response, right? According to both English and early American law, right, this was punishable by criminal and by civil proceedings. So the greater the truth, the greater the libel, they used to say. So libel and truthful libel, these are common law concepts. They're not from the Constitution. Right? They're judge-made law. It's a type of law that developed through the courts and one that would be every bit as precedential, precedent precedential as laws passed by legislatures, just not as instantly sweeping. So truthful libel wasn't all that controversial in the 18th century, 19th century, into the 20th century. So the First Amendment's promises of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, right? they didn't really fit into the landscape back then in the 18th and 19th century. Right? These principles did not have the same reverence or power that they do today. So they were there on the books. All right? They were de jure, but they weren't de facto. So people were still figuring out what these promises meant. And the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government. It didn't apply to the states and not to individuals or to private enterprise. So words on paper that seem to us absolutist, like no law should abridge the freedom of speech or the freedom of the press, weren't quite so protective of speech or the press after all. Now, you had the development in the 19th century of the penny press, they started tempting their readers with scandalous and sensational stories and invaded the privacy of private relationships, and the courts pushed back. So with people like Louis Brandeis, the U.S. Supreme Court justice, 
right? They believed that the elites understood what was best for society. So it was the elites who drove the need for truthful libel laws and the prosecution of the press for violating people's privacy, right? The, the elites understood that they knew what was best for society and they were therefore the best persons to make this sort of thing, you know, get, get punished. So the ignorant and the thoughtless, right? The, those who, who read newspapers from the lower classes, right? They came to believe that newspaper gossip was important news. And this fluff filled their brains. It just dwarfed their thoughts and aspirations. But thinking people, the elite needed to step in to take action to protect the naive and the lower classes who could afford but a penny for a newspaper. And in doing so, the thinking would protect society itself. So 1891 is the first time you have a justice mentioning the right to privacy in a concrete way for the first time in a tort context. A tort is a civil proceeding where you sue someone for damaging you. So this case involved a woman injured on a train who had refused the defendant railroad company's request that she submit to a surgical examination. She had the right to be left alone. She had the right to keep her nude body to herself. The justices decided, and they mentioned the right to privacy, the inviolability, the dignity of the person. This was sacred to and guarded by common law. Now, the people who most push for privacy laws and protection of the private tended to be elites with lots of things to hide, like President Warren Harding. You know, he pro praised journalists who developed a, a privacy code, right? And after he died, one of his mistresses published The President's Daughter, right? An account of her affair with Warren G. Harding, including the fact she'd fallen in love with him when she was 13. So their first kiss was when she was 18. Warren Harding was in his early 50s. He was a U.S. senator. He invited her up to a New York hotel's bridal chamber, chamber so that their discussion of a possible job and her admiration of him might continue without interruptions or annoyances. So, yes, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a fancy private hotel room where 18-year-old women could come up and express their admiration for you without interruption or annoyances? Okay, in 2016, the highest court in the United Kingdom told its newspapers that they could not publish a story that had been widely distributed on the internet about a man identified as PJS who was married to a major celebrity and yet had an affair with two others. This publication was deemed a clearly unjustified invasion of privacy, the United Kingdom highest court ruled. Right? United States didn't have a problem with this publication, so the National Enquirer published that uh, this man was Elton John's husband, David Furnish. Now, during the 1960s, 1970s, into the 1990s, the Supreme Court ruled that speech that embarrasses you know, private individuals doesn't lose First Amendment protection, and that such speech that offends does not need to be suppressed in the marketplace of idea, that the First Amendment requires adequate breathing space and so press responsibility can't be legislated and it's not mandated by the Constitution. And so due to all these court rulings in favor of journalism, you then had a flood, you know, a flood of complaints and reactions as journalists became increasingly less responsible. 
So journalists increasingly felt that they you know, had the, the right to publish anything. And so then eventually judges start pushing back in the 1990s into the last 40 years, pushing back, restricting press freedoms and making more and more rulings in favor of privacy because journalists were abusing their First Amendment rights and privileges. So in 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court protected the news media for reporting the name of an 11-year-old boy who'd been arrested and for videotaping him as he left court, all in violation of a lower court order. In 1979, the Supreme Court held that the media could not be published, punished for publishing the name of a photograph of a 14-year-old boy who'd shot a classmate. In 1989, the court decided that a newspaper would not be liable for publishing the name of a living rape victim. So there was an increasing celebration of press freedom through the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. There was an ever-growing sense that the public had all this right to know certain information, even if individuals found it embarrassing. So there's one book about Supreme Court decisions written for journalism students explains that absolutist views on press rights from concurring dissenting justices of the U.S. Supreme Court would appear more often in its pages without apology because its journalist author felt most sympathetic to that point of view. Legally, the right of privacy is not a major impediment to reporters and editors who seek to tell us about what is going on in the world. So in 1970, Newsweek magazine suggested that privacy was dead. Book magazine told its readers that sexual privacy was dying, that protection of sexual behavior had arisen in Victoria, Victorian times. There was no longer a need for it. Time magazine suggested that in First Amendment cases, it was clear that the news media had prevailed in the court of law. In 1997, Time magazine reporters confirmed that Americans' right to be left alone had disappeared. They had a cover story on the death of privacy. Okay, let's play a little bit more here from uh, Mark Shapiro. All right, Eric, love everybody. Okay, come That's on, mate. So I think uh, we're finishing Masechta, but I, 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 I think we don't have bar mitzvahs uh, with dancing during Sefer, except it's on Shabbos. That's my recollection. But he says uh, there's no issue at all. So here, Jacob, Yaakov. Challenges is me when I said that I think the uh, the real meaning of the hadron is uh, that uh, we'll return to you, you'll return to us. Uh, and I said it's probably a drash, like a nice uh, homiletic, that the hadron means our glory upon you, your glory upon me. And um, Jacob argues, no, just the opposite. That that's the actual meaning. Well, I tell you, if you look in Sperber's book, volume one, Minigay Yisrael, chapter 18, he brings both. Uh, there's big authorities on each side. Part of the issue is that there is a mistranslation. I thank you, Jacob, for pointing it out. Um, although it's usually translated as hadron, hadron, let's say, hadron, um, that we will return to you. As Jacob points out, it can't mean that because uh, you'd have the Nun uh, preface if that was the case. So what it really means, however, is we returned upon you and you returned upon us. Whatever that means, it's a little strange. But later, then it says, That's the future. So it says, we will not forget you and you will not uh, forget us. So you get uh, both, I guess they're both right. Now I'm going to get to what I said about the confirmation, because I promise. And the one who asked me about Beryl Wine's book, the new book, which is very relevant, it's all about orthodoxy and uh, the defense of orthodoxy. It's very relevant, the things we're doing in this class. I'll, I'll mention that next class. I, I took some notes on it, and there's a uh, there's a number of mistakes I'll point out, so much so that I believe, I mean, he's no youngster today, 
that I will show you things where I find it hard to believe he wrote it. I think he had an assistant, and uh, there's just certain things that I don't believe he could have written. Uh, well, just for instance, uh, I am certain I know that Rabbi Wine knows that Yeshiva University is spelled without an H at the end. So when you have Yeshiva University, uh, not just once, but uh, you know, again and again, spelled with an H, I have to think that um, some copy editor, and he, did, he, and he didn't read over, someone put that in. And I'll show you other examples of that as well, and I'll, I'll take issue with some of the things that Rabbi Wine uh, says. Okay, that's uh, Professor Mark Shapiro talking about the replies of Reform Judaism in 19th century Germany and the rabbinic response. Okay, mate, let's talk about Los Angeles Times article. This was big in the news a couple of weeks ago. Colorado Springs wrestles with its religious anti-LGBTQ past after a gay nightclub shooting. Colorado Springs. When officials unfurled a 25-foot-long rainbow flag in front of Colorado Springs City Hall this week, people who gathered to mourn the victims of mass shooting of a popular gay club couldn't help but reflect on how such a display of support would have been unthinkable just days earlier. With a growing, diversifying population, the Colorado City, nestled at the foothills of the Rockies, is a patchwork of disparate social and cultural fabrics. It's a place full of art shops and breweries, megachurches and military bases, liberal arts college and Air Force Academy. But last weekend's shooting has raised uneasy questions about the lasting legacy of cultural conflicts that caught fire decades ago and gave Colorado Springs a reputation as a center of religion-infused conservatism where LGBTQ people didn't fit in with the most vocal community leaders' idea of family values. For some, merely seeing police being careful to refer to the victims using their correct pronouns this week signaled a seismic change for others the shocking act of violence in a space considered an LGBTQ refuge shattered a sense of optimism that had spread from the city's revitalized downtown to the sprawling subdivisions on its outskirts. Okay, so what the hell was going on in Colorado Springs that was so anti-gay? And Ronnie Goodman discusses it in his great work in progress, The Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So it makes the point that the cause of gay rights, ever-increasing LGBTQ rights, is just another arena on which the anointed, right, the liberal, left, modern secularists dominate the high ground in most of our institutions. They dominate the means of cultural production. And this is just another arena in which the anointed prosecute their long war against the benighted, right, those with more traditional and conservative tastes. So we're talking about the court case of Romer versus Evans, which invalidated an equal protection grounds, an amendment to Colorado's state constitution, right? The people, right? Democratic processes work. The people passed Amendment 2 that would have barred municipalities from enacting pro-gay anti-discrimination ordinances. And the late Justice Antonin Scalia observed, when the court takes sides in the culture wars, it tends to be with the knights rather than with the common people or specifically with the Knights Templar, meaning the elites, reflecting the views and values of the lawyer class from which the court's members are drawn. Right? Court rulings tend to align with the sentiments, the partisan preferences of the lawyer class. How that lawyer class feels about homosexuality will be evident to anyone who wishes to interview job applicants at virtually any of the nation's law schools. The interviewer may refuse to offer a job because the applicant is a Republican, because he is an adulterer, because he went to the wrong prep school, or he belongs to the wrong country club, because he eats snails, 
because he is a womanizer, because she wears real animal fur, or even because he hates the Chicago Cubs. But if the interviewer should wish not to be an associate or partner of an applicant because he disapproves of the applicant's homosexuality, then he will have violated the pledge which the Association of American Law Schools requires all its member schools to exact from job interviewers, assurance of the employer's willingness to hire homosexuals. So I've gone to jobs where it's quickly very clear that the employer, that the organization, right, that this corporate structure was never going to hire an Orthodox Jew. They had no interest in hiring an Orthodox Jew because they loathed, feared, despised, or are comfortable with Orthodox Jews. But that prejudice is protected. You can refuse to hire Orthodox Jews. Right? You can't refuse to hire Jews, but effectively, you can't be sued for refusing to hire Orthodox Jews. So if you go to, I go, I've gone to many a job interview wearing a yarmulke, and probably two thirds of job interviews just write off, they will not hire you because you wear a yarmulke. But that prejudice is legally protected. Right? So this law school view of what prejudice, prejudices must be stamped out may be contrasted with the more plebeian attitudes that apparently still prevail in the United States Congress, which has been unresponsive to repeated attempts to extend to homosexuals the protection of federal civil rights laws. So apparently members of Congress are free to discriminate on the basis of homosexual orientation when it comes to hiring staff. So the real equal protection question raised by this court case is not whether gays are to enjoy equality with heterosexuals, notwithstanding the prejudices of Coloradans, but whether the prejudices of the ordinary Americans are to enjoy equality with the prejudices of the liberal elites. Right? The prejudices of the liberal elites are protected by law. They are free to never hire an Orthodox Jew or to never hire a Republican or to never hire a member of the NRA. Right? That is legally protected. Right? So the modern secular liberal left elites purport to stand for equality, but they stand for inequality in as much as they are privileged to shield their own prejudices, say, against Orthodox Jews or gun owners, from the scrutiny they routinely meet out to trads. So the modern secular left elites routinely avail themselves of the right to base their employment decisions on irrational factors like appearance, demeanor, personality, religiosity, right? These are not directly germane to job performance, narrowly construed, but are highly relevant to maintaining a workplace environment that reflects the liberals' sensibilities and self-image. Yet this is a privilege they reserve to themselves alone. They believe themselves more tolerant than regular Americans. But Justice Scalia argues that the liberal elite support for gay causes is an easy outlet for moral preening. It's not an expression of principled cosmopolitanism. The cosmopolitanism is nowhere to be found when it would conflict with the liberal elite's own prejudices, such as against religious people or guns, gun owners. So people on the left see this as a standoff between enlightenment and dark intolerance. But people from the right see this as a clash of prejudices. Like liberal, liberals argue that Amendment 2 placed a unique burden on homosexuals that was not suffered by heterosexuals. But conservatives retort that the invalidation of this democratically passed Amendment 2 placed a unique burden on popular culture that was not suffered by elite culture, right? 
their prejudices are protected, ours are not. That liberalism is always pushed through indeterminate abstractions like equality, but the concrete implementation of equality always engenders new forms of inequality. So liberals are blind to the self-righteous censoriousness that conservatives detect in them, because liberals will not recognize that inequality will always be conserved in some shape or form. They have merely chosen to conserve it in their own favor, and then they label this as progress. Right, so the court's decision to invalidate Colorado's Amendment 2, designed to preempt local laws prohibiting anti-gay discrimination, betrayed the law school view of what prejudices must be stamped out. It ratifies a state of affairs which the liberal elite can indulge their own arbitrary prejudices in employment decisions while preventing the, the common people from doing the same. So the equal protection problem posed by this case was not between gays and straights, but between the liberal elites and regular Americans. It's not about protection against prejudices, but about protection of the right to indulge in prejudice. Angus says, it's absolutely true about the lawyer class asserting incredible power to circumvent the will of the people. Trans are simply going to have to build large support networks where they work together across religions. Same people who are buying Teslas as an expensive virtue signal are now looking to ditch their Teslas because they don't like how Elon Musk has allowed conservative voices on Twitter. So you can call this the meta-equal protection problem, right? We're addressing not the victims of prejudice, but its bearers, the prejudicial privileging of some prejudices over others. The meta-equal protection violation discerned in conservative claims of cultural oppression is that liberals wield the power of the state and of elite social institutions to attack, denigrate, and deny other people's illiberal hierarchies while their own hierarchies and prejudices remain hidden from view, insulated from what would be analogous forms of criticism, regulation, and interference. So this is the difference between modern liberals and pre-modern conservatives. This is the central core of the liberal privilege <clears throat> that grieves the latter. So when Nietzsche writes that almost everything we call higher culture is merely the spiritualization of cruelty, and it's becoming more profound, becoming more refined that the older forms of cruelty offend the new taste. The art of wounding and torturing others with words and looks reaches its supreme development in times of corruption. So liberalism is this higher culture. This is what permits liberals to sublimate, to intellectualize, to etherealize the authoritarian impulses that conservatives express more crudely in ways more visible to the naked eye. So primitive man was a natural peacock, right? He was open in his self-display and in his self-glorification but liberal elites play the same, same game, only not as openly. Right? Liberals and conservatives play the same game, but the conservatives come across as more primitive and more crude in their hero system and in their prejudices. Right? The, the conservative and traditional hero system is less subtle and less disguised than the hero systems of the liberal left. It is this disguising of their hero system is what the ethos of disengaged Self-control and self-reflexivity, meaning constantly monitoring how your words and speech affect others, that's what enables liberals to pull this off. So this allows them to spiritualize all the impulses they would prefer to associate with conservatives and thereby indulge their prejudices under a veneer of cultural, political, and historical sophistication. So this liberal perspective is at its most plausible when it comes to something like the constitutional nullification of anti 
homosexual sodomy laws, as in Lawrence versus Texas. So this nullification may be formally hegemonic with respect to those who wish to monitor other people's bedroom activities, now prevents them from doing so. But substantively, the ruling upholds democracy, autonomy, and tolerance, as it is not endorsing any particular view of what should happen in those bedrooms. However, the question becomes more complicated in other contexts, such as Romer versus Evans, with Colorado's Amendment 2. Right, the decision nullifying Colorado's Amendment 2 on equal protection grounds. Right, this was promoted in reaction to municipal ordinances prohibiting anti-gay discrimination in liberal havens such as Boulder, Aspen, and Denver. So Amendment 2 would have repealed those ordinances and prohibited the enactment of similar ones in the future. Now, this measure was defended on traditional conservative grounds as an expression of the citizens' moral disapproval of homosexuality through their employment and rental decisions. So Amendment 2 was defended as creating a substantively anti-hegemonic domain. Its defenders viewed the liberals who succeeded in overturning it as agents of hegemony, that means power, working to curb the autonomous self-expression of Colorado citizens. So the democratically expressed wishes of Colorado citizens had to be smashed, democracy had to be smashed for the liberal elites to maintain their power. So, conservative censoriousness has been merely replaced by liberal meta-censoriousness. So, the core central justification for invalidating Amendment 2 was that it violated equal protection clause. And so, it imposed a broad political disability upon an entire class of persons. It ran afoul of the equal protection clause because it identifies persons by a single trait and then denies them protection across the board. Because the resulting disqualification of a class of persons from the right to seek specific protection from the law is unprecedented in our jurisprudence. So this amendment, too, would have required gays and lesbians to seek a political redress through the state's procedures for amending its constitution. By contrast, other groups unaffected by the law could continue to pursue their aims through ordinary political channels. So the central issue, then, was not the rights conferred by Amendment 2, the right to discriminate against gays and lesbians with legal impunity, but the rights withheld by it the rights of gays and lesbians to rescind the rights conferred, which the judge, the court judge had been unfairly burdened. So the state's purported interests here have been dismissed as mere pretext for animus. So the rationality of Amendment 2 right, was defended along a number of lines, including the state's legitimate interest in conserving resources, preserving its traditional morality, safeguarding freedom of association. But the court was not persuaded. Right? It did not address the broader questions of whether moral disapproval can qualify as a rational state interest. It refused to credit this motivation. So the court determined that Amendment 2's sheer breadth is so discontinuous with the reasons offered for it that the amendment seems inexplicable by anything but animus towards the class it affects. So therefore, Amendment 2 could bear no rational relationship to any legitimate state interests. So this reasoning, just as Scalia argued, was contrived and without legal precedent. So the central thesis of the court's reasoning is that any group is denied equal protection when, to obtain advantage or to avoid disadvantage, it must have recourse to a more general and more difficult level of political decision-making than others. The world has never heard of such a principle, which is why the court's opinion is so long on emotive utterance and so short on relevant legal citation. And you can say the same thing about the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling mandating a legalization for gay marriage. It seems to me most unlikely that any multi-level democracy can function under such a principle. This is the late Antonin Scalia. So the court's holding 
according to Scalia, is essentially incompatible with what we all recognize to be a state's power to pass laws prohibiting the award of municipal contracts to the relatives of city officials. It is refuted every time a state law prohibiting or disfavoring certain conduct is passed, and such a law prevents the adversely affected group from changing the policy thus established. So any kind of constitutional right places special barriers before those who oppose that right. And just as Scalia concludes the court's imputation of animus was without legal or empirical foundation, for the court's conclusion that Amendment 2 was inspired by a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group was nothing short of insulting. It's just an expression of the law school view of what prejudices must be stamped out. So the prejudices of the elites are protected. Prejudices and hero systems of ordinary Americans are continually restricted. So the court has simply taken sides in the culture wars. They've taken upon itself the responsibility of extirpating cultural values that did not resonate with the lawyer class from which its members are drawn. So the charge of animus was just the cultural imperialism of the liberal elites who indulged their own prejudices in their own hiring decisions, but they then deny this right to ordinary Americans whose tastes and values do not enjoy the same legitimacy. Right? We do not normally think of laws that regulate smoking or gun ownership or the receipt of municipal contracts as implicating what the court describes as a single trait of persons or a class of individuals. Right? The target such regulations appear to be activities or discrete benefits rather than persons. But people who own guns, that may be a major part of their identity. Right? These broad principles announced by the court are inherently unworkable. Right? The, the desire to smoke, to own a gun, to ride a mo motorcycle, to be the recipient of a municipal contract, these are not always just ordinary dispositions whose frustration we may resent but which do not go to the core of personhood and therefore define a social group. So, conservatives, trads, we see nothing compelling in this outlook. Why not instead view laws that implicate smoking, gun ownership, motorcycle riding, as targeting particular classes of individuals, single traits of persons, and view laws that implicate homosexuality as targeting behaviors and only derivatively those who undertake them. These are... There are plenty of gun owners who see gun ownership as integral to their identity. It's a source of human dignity, no less important than the right to have an abortion or to marry a member of the same sex or to engage in homosexual sodomy. So if the court would not adopt this perspective, this is because these identities are not compatible with the buffered distance afforded by the liberal left worldview. Right? The traditionalist sees the self as porous. What you do affects me the liberal left modernist secular approach is that the self is buffered so that even if there's you know, massive amounts of consensual incest between adults going on next door, that doesn't affect me. But that's not the traditional view. It's this idea of a buffered distance between us and other people that allows the court to treat, to treat indeterminate broad principles as determinative. Right. These are the lines which the court drew between what goes to the core of our personhood and what is just an ordinary disposition. So if the court's reasoning would not be applied to any statewide regulation of firearms, this is because firearms are relics of our barbarian past, right? the province of other less fortunate people. These are just symbols of the violence which the liberal, reflexive, disciplinary, buffered society seeks to extirpate. So sub-identities such as owning guns are legally protected, or not legally protected. Other identities, such as the right to commit sodomy, are legally protected. So why are some 
Right, Jesus is protected and others are not. Back to Machikara. So, I do want to talk about the confirmation for a minute. That's a reform, and that's going to be part of our Come story, on. depending on how, how long we continue, um, because the reform institute this confirmation, uh, which uh, the confirmation is, it's really an act of the, the, the youth confirming his or her faith. Uh, so what does that do with Bat Mitzvah? Because I connected them, and we dealt with uh, Rabbi Aaron Vulcan, the Rav of Pinsk, and his Zakan Aaron, and I looked in his Zakan Aaron because I thought I remembered it, and I was correct. His language is, can you do, he actually used the word confirmation, and he calls it Chag HaBagrut, to be So what does this have to do with uh, Bat Mitzvah? Well, what it has to do with Bat Mitzvah is the following, that uh, what the reform did is they took the confirmation, and uh, then that that uh, this was the first time that you recognize a girl, now, a, a girl reaching an age where she could be, let's say, a member of the community. And then that later morphed into bat mitzvah. It wasn't the Orthodox. And the Orthodox, who did this at first, and the Orthodox always assumed that the, the bat mitzvah and the confirmation were the same thing, that they're just a practice that was taken, first a confirmation, then you change uh, the name. Now, whether that's right or not, we can argue. Just to give you an example, the Sri Deyesh, his response about bat mitzvah is the most famous of them all. Well, uh, it's in volume uh, three, number 93. And he, he says, he goes, he says, there are those who wish to forbid it because of the Luchu Koseya. Don't take the non-Jewish practices. And who does he quote? The Zakan Aron. So uh, he, uh, the Sridi is saying it's the same thing, that confirmation, bat mitzvah, they all come from the non-Jews, which have then uh, been transformed by the irreligious. And that's the whole basis of his tshuva, where he deals with it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he, uh, the whole tshuva here that he deals with that. So that's why you see all these connections between confirmation and bat mitzvah. We have a, a nice anniversary here because um, I didn't even realize this, but uh, we are now in the, it's the 100th anniversary of the first U.S. bat mitzvah. That's Mordechai Kaplan's daughter, uh, Judith Kaplan. She would later marry Ira Eisenstein, who, uh, the son of, uh, Ju- grandson of Judah David, yeah, it's the grandson, not the son of the grandson. I'm forgetting now. Uh, uh, I, Judah David Eisenstein, if you remember the, um, uh, the his, he was the encyclopedist. Uh, the Otsar Havikuchim, Otsar, um, Oh, oh, yeah, like uh, 15 different uh, Otsars. Now, I can't remember if he's the, uh, he's the he's, he's grandson. Yes, he's the grandson of Judah David Eisenstein. Uh, those books are not used so much anymore because they have better editions. But anyone who uh, used Sfarim 34 years ago, you remember all the different Otsar, Dinim, and Hagim, full of good stuff. Uh, the final thing I want to mention uh, gets back to the one of the last things we spoke about last class, Rabbi Herman Adler. We were dealing, I think people emailed me about this, about the, the Tkiesa Shofar at the end of uh, Yom Kippur. So we saw Rabbi Adler with his Gaston's um, suggestion to uh, end in the Ela before, like uh, seven minutes or so. It doesn't give it time, but that's seven or ten. That's what you find uh, Shul's doing the end job is they start Myriv, and that's why they finish Myriv right when it's uh, over. And then they say Havdola. And that way, no one's, uh, they don't have to blow the show for anything. So after that, I was speaking to my son, uh, and um, back to this question, it's before it says. So the, the Shulchan Aruch says that uh, you have to uh, recite Kriyashma in the evening after it says Havdola. And yet, I can say, and a lot of shuls start, uh, some wait until uh, Shabbos is over to do Meyer, but lots of shuls, at least where I've been growing up, it's very standard. You start seven minutes, ten minutes, and then you finish up, but right when you get to the end, you know, I'm or uh, Aleinu, right when it's time for um, Havdalah. Some shuls I've seen where they start a little too early because someone's already carrying the Havdalah set, but it's not really, Shabbos isn't over yet. You still have one or two more minutes, so that's a problem, but uh, it's very common. Now, I've never seen, maybe you've seen, I've never seen a rabbi tell the shul, Motse Shabbos, when you start, let's say, seven minutes before, uh, say, so Havim, you start Meyer for a Monastery. Sorry, so Shema. Now, why not? You, you said Shema five minutes before it says Didn't we just say that you have to um, repeat, uh, you have to say Shema after it says? Furthermore, I'll take it one step further that uh, Shul's, I was in Shul tonight. Uh, we waited till Shia. It's, uh, I think for a minute it's, it's a Homer. I mean, if you have a group, uh, as at Seaboard, the Mishnah Bureau says you don't need to wait, but it's only, uh, you don't need to wait to Shia. There's, you, there's a Sira, you know, this internal Sira, but okay, it's just a couple of minutes. Uh, how many people say uh, Kriyat Shema at night again, the full Kriyat Shema? I think then if the rabbis would say you should, but it's not like the announcement, it's not like you make a big deal, and I think uh, very few people do say it. There is a shita, Rabbeinu Tom, that uh, you don't have to wait till uh, Tzitzchavim to do Kriyat Shema. Uh, I, I think 
in how I um, look at the, the, the Jewish world, uh, it seems that the Oyulam, without knowing it, is relying on the Rabbeinu Tom, because they don't repeat it. But I know the rabbis, at least my experience is, they do say you should repeat it, but they never say a word about repeating it after, I mean, Shabbos is ending in 10 minutes, they never say to repeat it. So I was wondering about that. I actually said to three online things, just, uh, you know, these sites, you can ask. One of them said, absolutely, you have to repeat, even though let's say Shabbos is over at nine o'clock, you do Kriyat Shema at 8.55, you have to then repeat it later that night. Another one wrote to me, he's not clear, he, he doesn't know, because uh, there are opinions that say this is earlier, and that just on Shabbos, we extend it a little. And then the third so I'm loving it here in Tenem Sands. And as I walk about, I often encounter people say, oh, this is the greatest country in the world. Why on earth would you move back to LA? LA is filled with influences. LA is filled with drugs and crime and homelessness and social dysfunction. Like, why on earth would you leave, leave Australia? And I would say one reason is that I like to talk to really smart people. I mean, for me, the equivalent of playing catch with Tom Brady, for someone who's just a, a giant NFL fan, is talking to someone with an IQ above 150. And I get to do that fairly regularly in Los Angeles. If I lived in Tenham Sands, I, I'm not sure there's anyone around here with an IQ above 150. But you have far more of these people in LA, and I get to interact with them. So that, for me, is absolutely thrilling. Right? Just bouncing ideas off, listening to people who are incredibly smart, break, break things down, have, have perspectives that I never thought of. Right? That, for me, is the equivalent of playing catch with Tom Brady or getting a, a blowjob from a porn star. So I've been listening, of course, every day I listen to 12-step talks, and I, I've been thinking about the importance to get outside myself. So we're suffering from an epidemic of loneliness, and I was just reading an article about one of the best solutions to loneliness is to take on a volunteer position. So when you take on a volunteer position, right, it helps you to get outside yourself. When you learn to take directions from a boss, from a family member, from someone above you, right, when you take directions from properly constituted authority, right, you also then get outside yourself. So I'm naturally incredibly self-centered incredibly egotistical, narcissistic, grandiose, those are my natural tendencies. So I find when I subordinate myself to taking directions from properly constituted authorities, that's really good for me. And another way I get outside of myself is to listen to lectures, listen to audible books, right? So I, I get outside of my own, my own thinking. So let's play a little bit more here from Professor Mark Shapiro, while I pull this show together. Third one is Eretz Chemda. I got the Eretz Chemda yesterday. And Eretz Chemda absolutely says there's no reason you have to repeat Shema Motei Shabbos. He says that uh, the Tzetz HaKochavim that we do, uh, Motei Shabbos, is we extend it because of Kedusha Shabbos, or maybe Josefa Shabbos, but there's Shitas that hold that an earlier Tzetz is okay, and since it's only a few minutes, five minutes or so earlier, you are definitely Yotze, and uh, there's no re reason that you have to repeat it. So, uh, and that, that's clearly the minhag. Uh, unless in your show, they tell you, it wouldn't make any sense, because any rabbi who's going to tell you to repeat Kriya Shema, uh, later in the evening is going to say, well, let's start davening at Seis. Any rabbi who says we're going to daven seven minutes before Seis is going to assume it's okay. And Eric Slendo says it's fine. So that's all I wanted to uh, talk about. Uh... Okay, let's have a look at Richard Spencer's Twitter feed. There are a few things worse than all proles, he says. This is Toby Robinson playing optics. Quick message, we're in London. We're outside the Ukrainian embassy. This isn't against Ukrainian people. But our government, as are all Western governments, are fighting a proxy war against Russia. They're using our taxpayers' money, people who can't afford to have their heating or their eating this Christmas, 
and they're sending billions and billions without asking a question of any taxpayer. All taxpayers' money, with no receipts of where the money's going. Who's receiving the money, where it's going, and what's it funding? And that's across the West. There's no cause for peace. And people are fed up of our taxpayers' money funding this war. So as we're here, we thought we'd stop off outside the Ukrainian embassy. We're going into London just to send a little, a, a very easy message. It reads, the UK gives billions of pounds to Ukraine financing Nazis. You know, all the left-wingers, all these people. You're funding literal neo-Nazis, trained regimental neo-Nazis. Okay? And they're taking our taxpayers' money to fight a bullshit war. So, yeah, just a quick message, that's all it is. Quick message, we're in London. We're outside the Ukraine. Okay, what else is on? What's going on in Ukraine? Okay, Christmas in Kiev. You see the result of the Russian attack on infrastructure, lack of power. Richard Spencer tweets taking on Tucker Carlson. It must all be part of Zelensky's war on Christmas. Richard says, there are serious objections and criticisms one can make regarding funding Ukraine's defense, but Tucker Carlson avoids these. He said he makes an absurd, manipulative, and bad faith claim that Zelensky is engaging in a war on Christmas. Here's a picture of Zelensky that he used. This was bipartisan masochism. The Uniparty is alive and well, despite the best efforts of voters, including last month. And if you doubt that it's alive and well, here's a picture of Zelensky that he had taken with a group of elderly Republican senators in Kiev back in May. They stand grinning next to him in their orthopedic shoes, 70-year-old Susan Collins, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, led by their 80-year-old ringleader, Mitch McConnell. 44-year-old Zelensky poses between them in a skin-tight polo shirt, flexing like a weightlifter and trying to look ferocious. They seem awestruck. Not since a young Fidel Castro showed up in New York wearing battle fatigues has this country's aging leadership class tittered more loudly in delight. They love a man in uniform. What a hunk. So strong and decisive. Look at the expression of Mitch McConnell's face. You can almost hear the giggles of pleasure. No rational person assessing the issues ever would have predicted this moment. If you were a Republican office holder and Zelensky came to Washington, maybe you would, for a moment, ask him about his current and ongoing war against Christianity in Ukraine, especially if you were, say, Mitch McConnell or John Cornyn, and a lot of your own voters go to church on Sunday. They might care about that issue. But McConnell and Cornyn didn't mention that. They didn't say a word. You will not hear a word on television tonight about the fact that Zelensky has banned an entire ancient Christian denomination in Ukraine and then seized churches and then thrown priests into jail. According to Mitch McConnell, who apparently hasn't left his office since the mid-80s, anti-Christian despotism is what most Republicans want above all. They don't get enough. They're just begging for it. Watch McConnell explain. Providing assistance for the Ukrainians to defeat the Russians that's the number one priority for the United States right now, according to most Republicans. That's sort of how we see the th challenges confronting uh, the country at the moment. And two other senators stand behind him, nodding like it's true. Defeating Putin is, quote, the number one priority among Republicans, says Mitch McConnell, who leads Republicans in the Senate. Number one before our own economy. 
or our own children's schools, or for that matter, before the more than 2,000 young people killed last year by fentanyl in Mitch McConnell's, quote, home state of Kentucky? Okay, I, I mean, I think there's a useful challenges to the conventional narrative. Let's have a look here, which is critique. Much of this derives from the fact that conservative thought leaders are anti-intellectual and their audience is low IQ. But it goes deeper. Conservatives actively pollute discourse. They don't want to or they can't contribute anything and thus consider derailment a victory. Uh, I disagree. I don't think that conservatives actively pollute discourse. They actively pollute liberal discourse. They They actively challenge institutional hegemonic in a liberal discourse. There might soon come a time when suppressing Tucker Carlson's program will be a matter of the national interests, much as suppressing Kremlin-controlled churches was for Ukraine. I, I think that's absolutely absurd. Right? Richard thinks that <laughs> we might need soon to crush crush Tucker Carlson's program, make it, make it illegal. What the hell? Ringleader Mitch McConnell. He's... This was bipartisan masochism. The Uniparty is alive and well, despite the best efforts of vote. Okay, we ought to play that. Steve Saylor was just suspended for telling truths about crime rates. And let's see. Russians only stand a chance of being free when they defeat the Kremlin in their minds. Richard says powerful words from Zelensky. This maximum can be applied in many areas. Which it says Tom Cruise is America's last movie stars. He's creating a new genre, hyper-realism. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? But Trump loyalist Mike Lindell returns, announces he's seen anomalies in the 2022 Florida governor's race. All right. I think that's ridiculous. Somehow I've lost the I've lost the, the flowing chat across my across my screen. So Next show, I'll absolutely fix that. Let me see what the hell else is going on. Play a little Mark Shapiro. Uh, today, I want as preface, uh, but now let's get back to Come on, Mark. our comments, our discussions, and we're picking up in the safer. Well, we're going to look actually uh, in the safer Ava Debris. But before we get to that, I want to mention something I told you because I think it, I love these fascinating stories. I'm going to tell you that none of them are true, but they reveal an insight into the world and what's thought of as something to admire, uh, although. It's not just us listening who are going to be shocked. And, not, and I don't think anyone listening is going to see it. Admiral. I've asked our aid team about this, and they too are very troubled by these sorts of stories because we live in a whole totally different world than what um, it's like. Um, and it's not just in English speakers, but in particular English speakers. Like when they translated, uh, Arts Girl translated the biography of Rabbi Yoshev into English, they took out sections. In the Hebrew biography, they played up the fact that he didn't have any personal relationships, even with his family, because he was cool on Torah. So much so that it says that they couldn't remember his children's names. Uh, uh, when Arts Girl translated that, they knew that that wouldn't play well, so they... Um, they got rid of it. Uh, they took that stuff out. Uh, but this is the story. I tell you, if the, the letter of the Dayanin to Rabbi uh, Moshe Sofer, Schreiber, the Chassam Sofer, says, it mentions his father-in-law, Rabbi Kiva Eger, Rabbi Posen. Rabbi, the Chassam Sofer is married three times. First wife, no children. Second wife, that's the daughter of Rabbi Kiva Eger. He had uh, all of his children with, and then he married a third time. If you come with this, this summer to Central Europe, I've showed you already the grave of the Pagamiros of Eger Eisenstadt, but right near there is the grave of uh, Rabbi Kiva Eger's, uh, not his father, I think it's his, just his mother. Um, not his father, uh, as, as I recall, but um, we, um, uh, Rabbi Kiva Eger, uh, uh, just, uh, I don't know if it's a year or one year older than um, his son-in-law, the Chazam Sofer. 
And there's all sorts of stories in their connection. But I want to read you now one of the most famous stories. It's repeated in many, many places with slightly different versions. But uh, the one I'm reading from is from um, Ramosha Sternbach, it's Tom Badas, volume one, pages 244, 245. And he's quoting it from Rabbi Kahneman from the Pana But and in case you think, well, this is a Litvak, what do they know about uh, the Hungarian traditions? The same story is found in, not only is it found in, um, in um, Hungarian traditions, it's even found. So anyway, as I'm going to playgrounds trying out these various exercise machines, I'm finding out how flabby my my abdomen is. So I'm doing these exercises, you know, where I lie on a board and then lift up my legs like this. And it's really easy when you're lifting up your legs to not lengthen through your legs, to just kind of allow your legs to kind of collapse into your groin area. And so when I'm doing these exercises, I'm thinking about lengthening out from my hips, right? Getting getting length from my hips to my knees, from my knees to my ankles, right? You don't want to just collapse into you know, patterns of unnecessary compression. Right? You don't want to collapse into compressing down, pulling down, just losing your length and your width. So I'm thinking about freeing my neck, directing my head away from my torso, thinking about length from my hips to my knees, my knees to my feet. And uh, let's go back to listening to some Mark Shapiro. I'm in the family, but here's the, here's the story. You tell me what you think. It says that uh, when the, uh, um, and Rabbi Economy got this from his father all. When the Chassam Sofer's uh, wife died, the daughter of uh, Rabbi Kiva Eger, they didn't tell her father that she passed away. Now, that's believable because uh, there was a tradition in Europe that you didn't, not just in Europe, uh, that you didn't, you didn't tell. Like today, we, we always tell. There was a tradition you didn't tell this news. People would get letters, you know, a few times a year. They didn't pass this news on. And there's no chiyof to tell people about that. If they, when they learn about it later, if they learn about it a year after the fact, then you go to the Shulchan what type of shit? So chiyof means obligation. So yeah, I'm directing out through my ankle. So I'm directing sending direction from my hips to my knees, thinking about the length from my hips to my knees, and then the length from my knees to my ankles. What type of availus you do? So, okay, so they didn't tell Rikita Eger, and he thought she was still alive. And lo and behold, it happened that Rikita Eger was near Pressburg. And he told, uh, he announced that he wants to go uh, spend Shabbos at the house of the Hasem Sofer, that he hasn't seen him in many years. And the Hasem Sofer didn't know what to do now, uh, because uh, he already married someone else. So he has a new wife, his third wife. And he never told uh, the Hasem Sofer. And, uh, and the story here says that he consulted with his wife and she was ready to leave the house for Shabbos, but the Chassam Sofer said she should stay in the house. And that, that's, that, everyone has that version, actually. Yeah. Erev Shabbos, it says, when he there comes to the Chassam Sofer's house, um, they, they say to him that the Chassam Sofer is at the base then. He goes there and immediately they get into a discussion about a get that the Chassam Sofer is dealing with. The Danilu Pilpulu at Samach of Shabbos. So they are talking and learning until Shabbos begins. So I didn't get a body like this, you know, just from sitting around studying Talmud all day. I didn't get a, a turned body like this just from eating ice creams all day or eating chocolate or watching cricket and eating mangoes, right? I, I had to work for, for a body like this. Right? I had to suffer for a body like this. Then they, uh, they, they, they bathe themselves and they go to the mikvah and they accept Shabbos and they continue talking at the meal. And they're so involved in their learning, the whole Shabbos, as soon as Havdalah comes, the Rebbe Eger is about to leave, and he says he doesn't even have to hurry. He has to get run. He doesn't even have time to speak to his daughter. He just asks her, uh, the husband's over, to give her a drisat um, shalom. So here we're supposed to imagine that Rebbe Eger comes to the house of the husband's over. He's there the whole Shabbos, in the house, eating all the meals, and he doesn't realize that the woman sitting at the table is not his daughter because he's so involved in learning. It's, 
Now, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's possible. I don't care how great a lambda you are. But the fact that the story's told, um, notice what the stress is on. The stress is on that lima Torah above personal relationships. I think for most of us, we would say that's terrible. Your child, Rebbe Lichtenstein, by the way, has a comment about this, uh, about these ideals that you're not supposed to have relationships with your children because you're supposed to be involved so much in learning uh, how much he thinks how terrible it is. But um, notice the stress here. And no one, Rebbe Moshe Sternbach wouldn't say that we're supposed to be like this, but uh, it, it becomes a model for people of a different level. Uh, so, and there's other stories about the two of them uh, in an interesting correspondence. Um, let's talk now. I want to introduce you to a new book, a very uh, important book. Let me pull it up here for you so you can uh, see. I'll to the first page of it. Uh, um, we saw Noga Hatzedek, uh, and now we're going to see Eva Divrei Hebris. This is published by the uh, the anti-reformers. And again, as we start looking at this work, rem- remember the big problem we're going to have. If something is mutar, mutar, according to the Shulchan Aruch, can the rabbi say it's usr? And if they do say it's usr, on what basis can they say it's usr? Can the rabbis declare something usr because they think it's going to have negative communal implications, even if technically it's, it's mutar? And if they do... So asur means forbidden, mutar means permitted. Do they have to explain what they're doing, or can they keep the masses in the dark? and have the masses think that it's forbidden, where it's only the rabbis know that it's really not technically forbidden, but we think it's going to have bad implications and it's going to lead to problems. That's something... Okay, Bell is in the house. Bell says, news from Zero Hedge, the European Union, wants individual carbon taxes on citizens. Some EU nations want thousands of farms shut down, and every gas tank fill-up should have to pay a fee. We keep in mind. Now, with the responses we're going to see here in the Evative Verbius, we really see the beginning of orthodoxy. Well, what is... What does orthodoxy mean? How does it differ from tradition? Usually, in, um, due to the influence of uh, Jacob Katz, uh, we see traditional Judaism as something imbibed in the home, something you do unconsciously. That's the way you grow up. Whereas orthodoxy is a self-conscious adherence to tradition. No longer is there an expectation that you have to observe. You're conscious of it. You make a conscious choice to go against the grain, as it were, and to uh, adopt practices that there's no outside pressure telling you you have to, and you're even a minority. Uh, you choose to be observant. In the traditional society, you never chose to be observant. That was the way you grew up. And... Uh, that's orthodoxy. And we're going to see that orthodoxy is not really identical with uh, traditional Judaism. There's some different steps that orthodoxy takes. Obviously, they all observe Asher, Shabbos, etc. But in terms of how to deal with problems, traditional responses are different than orthodox responses. Orthodox responses, I guess you'd say, even more reactionary. Therefore, if you look, for instance, in the Sephardic world, uh, certain things that would never be imaginable in the Ashkenazic world because they never had to, they were never really what we call an orthodoxy. But so here's the title page of this work, Ego Divrei Let me just summarize uh, it uh, uh, for you. Uh, well, it's, uh, the, these are the words of the covenant um, that uh, cannot be changed ever. Um, based upon, and now we're going to hear the psak of the, the based in of Hamburg, and uh, the, the, the rabbis of Hamburg, the Dayani, their hand was strengthened by the Gedolim in Ashkenaz, Germany, in Poland, in uh, France, in Italy. That's going to be important because remember, you had two rabbis in Italy uh, supporting the Nogat Sedek work. Umedina Bemen, that's Bohemia. Bohemia is um, today in the Czech Republic, Prague, and going south. And in Meren, that's Moravia. If you go even more south, we drive up in our trip. We drive up from Vienna right through Moravia into Bohemia, the Ungar, Hungary. So you have a lot of rabbis responding. Kuang Echad. Every, as one, they're uh, responding. This comes from Daniel. That's, uh, you know, they're making the decree. Now, what, what are they decreeing? Lafer to do blanket, get rid of. Remember we said? A new religion. What the argument is going to be that reform is a new religion. And we saw already last class why that's important, because new religions are forbidden by the government. And this work is intended to support the position of the rabbis of Hamburg that this is a new sect, and uh, they have to be shut down by the government. And in parentheses, it says that uh, who are not B'nai Torah invented this new religion. Uh, they came up with practices not according to Torah. And therefore the Gaonim have stood up um, to, uh, this comes from Yishayahu, it means to fasten a peg in a
Okay, I just found this new podcast. It's called Sounds Like a Cult. This is the podcast here on the Cult of From the Zeitgeist, from essential oils lovers to theater kids, to try and answer the big question. This group sounds like a cult, but is it really? To join our cult and see culty memes and behind-the-scenes pics, follow us on Instagram at Sounds Like a Cult Pod. I'm on Instagram at Isamadina, I-S-A-A-M-E-D-I-M-A-A. Okay, let's get to it. Yeah. Yeah. There is a video medium, and yeah, we yeah, encourage yeah. people to engage with that. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> get in our YouTube cult. Yeah. We're almost yeah. at 1,000 subscribers. Ooh, we, oh, we surpassed baby. it. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Congratulations. Our Thank audio you. numbers are much better for those listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless you want to keep listening because it's like niche, then our audio numbers are tiny. Oh yeah, no, no, no. We this is a very underground. Like you're getting in on this early. I yeah. want everyone to know that they drove here in. Uh, they both had a Bentley. That yeah. They, that they towed, towed in a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Hello, I am stand-up comedian J.F. Harris. Uh, I'm a stand-up comic. You may have seen me on the Late Late Show with James Gordon or Bill Burr's The Ringers on Comedy Central. I just put out an hour special with All Things Comedy, the network that your guys' podcast is on. Yeah, and it's really funny. You guys should watch it. It's so good. I met you for the first time here. At ATC. At, at ATC, the studio. and we were brainstorming how we could get you on the pod, and the first thing that you said was Cult of 12-Step programs. Yeah. And I gasped because we've been trying to find a guest for this topic, but it's hard because you can't just go up to people and be like, are you an yeah. addict? Yeah. 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 You, you sober? You sober? You seem like you, you should look be. Like you, you look like you should be. You look like you need help, like, yeah. in many ways. But yeah. you brought it up. Yeah, because I'm very openly sober. I talk about it in my comedy and stuff like that. And I've been sober for a long time. And often people assume that 12 step is a cult of some form, yeah. shape or matter. Well, the funny thing is that um, the entire thesis for. Look, every in-group is going to have cult-like aspects to it. So the important thing to do if you have the cognitive ability to put, pull this off is to you know, enjoy your in-group, participate with your in-group, dance with your in-group, sing with your in-group. But also take a little t cognitive space to step outside your in-group and think about how what you're saying, believing, doing, and dancing in your in-group looks to people outside your in-group. But there's no in-group that does not have culty aspects, and that includes 12 steps. So yeah, I'm borrowing a lot of clothes, like the, the airline left my clothes, and so this is the, the, the Ten of Sands, Boyne Island, so the Bits Soccer Club t-shirt I was a player for the lowest division of Boyne Island Tenham Sands Soccer Club back in 1984-85. I did not score one goal. I did not equip, my, equip myself with, with any distinction. I've never displayed any athletic talent whatsoever, not being the worst, but just being really, really mediocre. My book, Cultish, which is about the language of cults from Scientology all the way to SoulCycle by wherever books are sold or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> pitch, that elevator pitch is tight. Thanks so much. But um, it was entirely inspired by a conversation I had with a very, very good friend of mine who had started going to AA. And this was like my dear, dear friend who I could communicate with without words whatsoever. And all of a sudden she was speaking in that very distinctive AA vernacular mm, with yeah. the buzzwords and the acronyms. Yeah. And it just seemed incredibly culty. It was obviously working for good because it was keeping her sober. But I was like, I have to. So I went up to, to Palm Beach, 20 miles north of uh, Sydney, and it was raining and I was hanging out, sheltering from the rain with some lifeguards. And this one older lifeguard said to me, you know, why do you live in, in Los Angeles? That, that city is filled with influences. So I didn't tell him about my gigantic, you know, influencer shtick. Oh, I had a much more profound point to make, and I've now forgotten it.
write a book about the way that cult language works for good and for ill. Oh, oh, anytime anyone joins an in-group. All right, I've joined another in-group. I'm in Australia. I'm talking about cricket. I'm using language and accents and behavior and mannerisms that I would not use if I were in Los Angeles right now. So anytime you join any kind of in-group, it has an effect on your, the language you use, the way you see the world. Right? This is not something unique to Scientology or to 12-step programs. It was yeah. all inspired by AA. That's did, awesome. Did she like not tell you like you kind of had to figure it out yourself when she started going to? She told me. Is Luke missing LA yet? Not just his stuff. Uh, if I am, it's it's very, very little. You know, I, I'm having a ball here in Australia. But once I get back to L.A., I expect to be loving it in L.A. So uh, I, I I wear rose-colored glasses. I, I try to see the best of where I'm at. I try to see the best in whatever situation I'm in. Right? I, I try to put on a new pair of glasses, you know, focus on what's good in whatever situation I'm in. So when I get back to L.A., I expect to be loving it in L.A. All right, back to, sounds like a court, a court of 12-step programs. After she had been going for many months. And okay. this was my best friend. But, you know, addiction can be quite secretive. Yeah. When I got sober, most people were like, you? But, like, the part they didn't see was, like, all the drinking by myself. Yeah. Like, I would go out and drink with friends or other comedians and then just, I was the guy who was always keeping everyone up until 6 in the morning. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, we know we know that guy. Yeah, <laughs> we all. I mean, we all can probably think back to college or to our adulthood to someone who is probably an addict. I didn't realize until like recently, with like personal experiences, that like it really is like addiction, or at least like alcoholism specifically, is really a disease. You can see how there are different people who drink the same, but it affects some people different. So I brought my activator with me on this trip, and uh, I brought my massage gun with me on this trip. I'm having quite a bit of uh, golfer's elbow. So been looking up YouTube videos on solutions for, for golfer's elbow, like doing a lot of exercises like out to the side, you know, lifting weights up to the, the front. But at least I got my massage gun with me. Didn't bring my CPAP to Tenham Sand, so I'm not getting the, the same quality of sleep that I had in Sydney. Brandly. wildly different yeah mm. yeah like i'm i'm the kind of drunk that if i have i can go a day or two without drinking or whatever but once i have one drink i never know how many i'm gonna have yeah it wasn't uncommon for me to just be like let's party all night yeah right. you know? obviously there are so many culty rituals and power dynamics yeah so i think that i experience pornography different than the normal people i would spend you know much more time with it i'd have stacks of it stored in, in the bushes outside my home uh, I, I, you know, religiously study, you know, each issue of Penthouse magazine. So like some people, alcoholics have an unusual relationship with alcohol. I think I had an abnormal relationship with pornography. In 12-step programs, like the serenity prayer to... Yeah, well, a lot of it came from a group uh, in, we'll say for Alcoholics Anonymous specifically, uh, it came from a group called the Oxford Group, mm -hmm. which is a group that like formed tangentially. No, that's not how you say tangentially. It. Tangentially, yeah. She's yeah. A word girl. Yeah, through, through, uh, <laughs> it's like a religious group, and then they yeah. kind of broke up because they didn't like having a bunch of foul mouth cigarette smoking uh, troublemakers around. That sounds like the reason a band would break up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, were like, <laughs> they like broke up the band. These guys seem too cool. We got to go do our nerd thing over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they talk about the origins of the twelve step programs that you may or may not be in? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'll say I'm in a twelve step program. I'm not going to say which one, but I know for Alcoholics Anonymous, they do. Yeah, it's all in the 
like the book. The it's big a book. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They have all that stuff in there. So there's different 12-step programs. So, so we're looking at uh, news coverage from the government ABC channel here in Australia. So Scott Boland has been included in the second test match against South Africa, which begins at the Melbourne Cricket Ground tomorrow. So Australian news is usually about 25% about what's happening in America. Uh, American TV news is probably what point. 0.1% about what's happening in Australia. So all sorts of like you know, mid-level American celebrities like get you know, prominent mentions on, on Australian news. If you have a, if you, uh, have a problem with food, there's OA. If you have a problem with sex and love, there's SLAW. If you have a problem with drugs, there's Narcotics Anonymous, NA. And then if you have problems with alcohol, there's Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Let's talk like right off the bat about what you think are some of the culty aspects of 12-step programs, either in good ways or in bad ways? Uh, I, well, I will say um, in good ways, uh, it gives you a structure and a form of living that helps you learn how to be. So when I was getting on the plane for Gladstone from, from Brisbane, the, the pilot was wearing, you know, one of those Christmas hats. So I'm not sure you'd see that in, in the United States. So it's much more unabashed celebration of Christmas. Everyone wishes each other a Merry Christmas, right? I don't normally w wish people a Merry Christmas back in America because it's more multicultural. I feel like I can say, you know, happy holidays, but uh, everyone here wishes each other a Merry Chrissy. So I have fallen in with that. An adult and like handle adult things in adult ways. Before I was in a 12 step, I was definitely... Uh, like an active alcoholic and child <laughs> you yeah know? it taught me how to like grow up and be a person who could like face life on life's terms and not like hide and duck from everything through like yeah booze. that's culty in a good way in a good way yeah, yeah. You, you know they give you like structure structure yeah. yeah and like you see you get to meet other people who've been through hard things and you learn a way of living of like keeping your side of the street clean or like Getting into prayer and meditation, like yeah. things like that, which yeah. some people might say is culty, but also at the same time, you don't have to believe in it. I don't know any other place where you get as much honesty and depth from frequently complete strangers as, as you get in a 12-step meeting. Anything. Like that same thing we keep saying of like the good version of cults is like because it, it kind of tells you how to live. It takes yeah. that weight off your shoulders because you're like okay, oh, these are the steps I need to follow and like kind of takes your mind off going in all, all different directions. Well, yeah, because life is profoundly chaotic it's and there really is no structure out of the gate. And so when a group can provide you with rituals, like, oh, you get a chip every milestone of sobriety that yeah. you meet. And like, this is what we say at the beginning of every meeting, like yeah, that can provide some solace. Yeah, in the beginning when young people are, or new people are getting sober, despite the age, you, you're supposed to do like a 90 and 90. What does that mean? Uh, 90 meetings in 90 days. So there's no human organization that's not going to have dark sides. So for all the, the wonderful things that are just being espoused about 12 steps, all right, it comes with, with downsides for some people. You know, anything human is going to be open to, you know, exploitation, to sociopaths, you know, taking advantage of people. So just because you go to a 12-step meeting, it doesn't mean that you need to be open and honest and disclose painful parts of your life with, with everyone you meet. There are plenty of sociopaths in 12-step meetings that you don't want to invite into your house, right? When, when it comes to, like, listening to a sponsor, taking direction from a sponsor, I think the only thing that you should absolutely listen to, <coughs> take direction from a sponsor, <coughs> when he calls you back to the 12 steps, to the big book and to the tools, everything else is 
just a penny. 90 meetings in 90 days. Oh, wow. So yeah. meeting every day? Yeah, for the first it's like 90 days. stand up. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's yeah. like you have to go it's to a mic like every day. Yeah, it's like if you want it. And, you know, they say things like, how often were you drinking and using? It's like, well, that's probably how often you should be going to oh, meetings. Oh, wow. Because you're replacing a bad habit with a good habit. <laughs> replacing like your alcoholic barfly friends with your new sober friends. That makes sense. That's like why people who leave cults often like end up in like another type of cult, yeah. cult hopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see that for sure. It's literally yeah, I got a Peloton. <laughs> you do. Exactly. I mean, have an iPad with a Peloton. So I'm particularly susceptible to cults, I, I think, because part of me resonates to that, that easy access to feel like you're connected with other people, that you're celebrated and loved by other people. Because much of my life, I'm not connected normally with other people. So the, the, the shortcut of having human connection and love and community with a cult is frequently being highly, highly attractive to me. But then I have a very skeptical part of my brain that then wants to you know, read the, the darkest, most intense criticism of whatever cult it is that I'm attracted to. And I'm attracted oh. to a spin bike. I got sober December 25th, 2012. I'm a Christmas Mazel baby. Tov. What do you say? I'm a Christmas baby. Um, had a rough Christmas Eve. Uh, rebirth. You're using yeah, the language yeah. of rebirth. Yeah, yeah. I, was, Pretty I was born again on on Jesus's birthday. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a 12 step. I got a sponsor. I got three sponsees. I like do the thing. I work. Wow. I do stuff on like the board level. Do you feel like being involved helps you kind of like stay sober? A hundred percent. So like it's because of doing work in like a 12 step program that like I volunteer pretty regularly where I work at a food kitchen. Like mm -hmm. I do stuff that's outside of myself because I learned through the program uh, that the best way to get outside of yourself is by helping other people. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, which is so true. Yeah. So I that's what I do, you know, and so. Um, in the 12-step programs, it's a triangle for uh, some of them, and it's the three sides of the triangle stand for you. So we should be getting the Christmas message from Prince Charles in just a few minutes. Are you excited for that? Unity service recovery, mm -hmm. and they each are a different part. And, like, you're supposed to do all three parts because, like, a table can't stand with two uh, legs. Oh yeah. my god. See, these are the sayings yeah. that I'm talking about. Like, yeah. It really is this incredibly robust, built-out religion 12-step program. Yeah, because yeah, it's, except it's not a religion because it's not a religious program. Well, it's a define religion. It's a spiritual program. Yeah. And it even says that in the book. The whole point is it's like, oh, you don't believe in God? Good. Most of us don't either. Yeah. Or it's like, you don't believe in this? It's like everything's, uh, the program is meant to be suggestive only. Sure. Uh -huh. And I guess like on this podcast, we interrogate like, what is a cult? What is yeah, a religion? Yeah. Man, I have been trying to meet my, my father hunger and, and mother hunger on this trip. I've just been stuffing down the ice cream. I had a whole bunch of chocolate at, at Christmas lunch. Boy, what else did I have? I had Christmas cake. My God, I'm never going to satiate my father hunger and my mother hunger 40 with, with chocolate and, and with ice cream. All right, it, it's not, it's not the, the path. How, how how did I feel myself like this? Even, can a religion be secular, actually? Yeah. Like, what is the difference between a culture, a social oh, clique, a speech. cult, or yeah, religion, you know? I think the idea of saying it. Oh, this is exciting. What does the king have to say? A special setting for a Christmas message from a new monarch. Christmas is a particularly poignant time for all of us who have lost loved ones. King Charles paid tribute to his mother, from St George's Chapel at Windsor, where Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were laid to rest. We feel their absence at every familiar turn of the season and remember them in each cherished tradition. 
He also urged people to honour essential workers, as well as volunteers helping in times of crisis. We see it in the humanity of people throughout our nations and the Commonwealth who so readily respond to the plight of others. In Bethlehem, thousands gathered to celebrate Christmas at Midnight Mass. And at the Vatican, Pope Francis addressed over 7,000 Catholics, calling on his followers to remember those in poverty and people caught up in conflict. Okay, question in the chat. What's a typical Australian dessert? So pavlova, right? I think this is an original Queensland contribution to dessert. The story goes in the 19th century Australia in its colonial days at, uh, you know, some some official function, there was an excess of uh, passion fruit. And so uh, they, they made this dessert so that they could, you know, use all the, the passion fruit. And it's basically just eggs and, and sugar. And I think the, the guest of honor at this dinner was like Princess Pavlova. And so they named this, this classic Australian dessert dish uh, Pavlova in honor of the, the princess. Okay. Fair dinkum. More of a culture makes a little, it's a spiritual program that's like, goes along like the How cultural How do you define line. that spiritual program? Uh, in like 12 step programs, steps one, two, and three are about quitting drinking and drugging. And the rest are about how to live your life in like a more spiritual way. Yeah. And I kind of don't think too much about it. I just think to myself like, Okay, I don't believe in like God, God, but there's like, here's one of those acronyms you're going to love, good orderly direction for God. So I just think about like, if there was like a higher power, a spiritual being, like what best version of myself would that want me to be? And then I like good orderly direction, just kind of walk in that version. Yeah. So I I believe in God, but I I like the idea of different language, different concepts, different approaches to the God ideas. So uh, God as good orderly direction or God as reality, that, that works for me. It's a nice... Nice change of pace, right? You don't want to always just throw, you know, five fast bowlers at the opposition. You may want to throw three fast bowlers, a seam bowler, and a spin bowler, right? You want to, you have to mix things up. See, as the wicket begins to turn, you might want to introduce some spin in the third or fourth or fifth day of a test cricket match. So two, you know, different concepts, different language for for God and the transcendent. It's uh, refreshing. A direction? funny i'm sorry but i think that's so funny because you're like well if there was a god but like yeah. you're you're but like you're acting like there is but like you believe that there isn't so like you're i believe, allowing, that, I, believe I don't know well, here here's the thing it doesn't matter if you believe in god you just got to believe that you're not god okay you're is that not, a phrase or did you coin that uh i i think i've heard other people say that or maybe i said it but like and ultimately that's true because god is a woman so you're definitely, definitely not, God. God. Definitely not yeah. you. Yeah. Honestly, I think God would probably be. So one of the last academic studies of 12-step programs from something like 1979, all right, was was a book, something like uh, Not God, right? That was the, the whole academic analysis of 12-step programs is to help people realize that they are not God. And that's the spiritual foundation the 12-step programs, You Are Not God. So Not God is the name of a well-known book about 12-step programs from an academic perspective. Yeah, they, I think it would be gender Yeah, they know. Gender uh, uh, That is such a... Yeah, and I believe in like quantum physics. I'm very much a science person. I grew yeah. up with science. So it's like, it's just all cells and atoms. We're all connected. Yeah. 
So whatever that is, is God. And physics yeah. can get really spiritual. Yeah. I mean, like Einstein's theory of space time. It's like we're yeah. all, all of time exists at once. Like, yeah, that's pretty I can't spiritual. even look at the stars for more than 15 minutes. So. <laughs> Without having a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been to my fair share of AA meetings. Just And the chat says, read some Dostoevsky and you'll feel God. Oh, I'm, I kind of burned out on Dostoevsky about 30 years ago. So I don't resonate with Dostoevsky. I, I don't feel God through Dostoevsky. I, I much prefer Tolstoy. It's like crashing with yeah. my friend. And I love going because... That's called an open meeting. An open meeting, yeah. Oh, you don't... They're not always open? They're not always Sometimes open. Sometimes they're closed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I go to open meetings and I love going because... It just feels like going to a moth story slam. It's like yeah. the best fucking stories yeah. go down. And the chat says LibriVox has, you know, some good recordings, some good short stories on audiobook, but the, the quality of the reading on LibriVox is so mediocre that I would often prefer to pay ten, fifteen dollars for, you know, a professional reader to read a book than to get the cheap LibriVox version. Um, it's mostly so yeah people people down under can't believe that i spent 150 dollars a month on news subscriptions and i'm now thinking of adding an extra 40 dollars a month for the financial times and i subscribe to audible for 15 dollars a month get one free audible book every month you laughing really like, yeah if you're going to fun meetings i mean i've been to like meetings in sad places but... yeah if you're in, in like a New York or an L.A. or something like that, it's like you're going to meet a lot of people with like a lot of time who are like pretty chill and pretty fun. Do you think people in L.A. are performative in AA meetings? I've seen people be super – I've seen people in every city. Or in Because yeah. I've gone to meeting 12-step meetings all over like the country. Yeah. And you have your – what's it called when you sort of like tell your story? Your pitch? Your pitch. Yeah. Your, or your lead. Like if so like... – It's uh, your share. Looking at uh, Twitter, got – Pick up Gary PUA says, can you be sweet, kind, and considerate to a girl without losing her attraction for you? Yes. As long as one, you don't do it all the time. Two, you don't use it to win back her intimacy. Three, you don't reward her bad behavior. Four, she doesn't pull away after train the princess says, got pickup. Like the way a meeting would work is for anyone who's never been to one and is just curious. You go into a meeting, there'll be a bunch of people either in a circle or sitting down. 12-step programs, there's no, like, leader. Okay. There's no... Centralized yeah. organization. It's not a centralized organization. It's just, uh, it's run by the people who put it together. And yeah. then there's, like, suggestive guidelines. But yeah. Even though... That's what I was going to say is one of the least culty things about it. I feel like that yeah, there is no, no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. There's no financial, uh, in, like... Entrance ent cost. There's zero... We need you more than we need your money. Yeah. So 12-step programs are unique in that they won't take money from people outside the program. So how many nonprofits don't want your money? Also, they've set a limit on something like 2000 or $3,000 a year, and they won't take any more. So all sorts of people leave a particular 12-step program, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in a will, and the 12-step program won't accept it. So it doesn't want matters of, you know, money and prestige ruining the program so i'm just not aware of many other nonprofits who so frequently turn down money uh there's no money in it's a sort of reminds me of, uh, in instead of like soul cycle where there are obviously like high costs to attend each class and you have to like sign up for a membership or whatever it reminds me more of this one workout that i researched a little bit for my book but that ended up on the cutting room floor called the november project have you heard of that no, no. It sounds salty. <laughs> yeah it's like but it's free early morning boot camps that just like volunteers put on oh, oh. i may have heard about this well what's funny is that there's almost something like 
even cultier about that in yeah, a way. Yeah, the fact that they're like, it's free. And then <laughs> like, you, you have can't to show leave. up at 6 a.m. while it's still dark. Yeah. <laughs> there are 12-step meetings at all times of day and night, aren't there? Yeah, 24-7. I mean... Okay, cult isn't always bad, right? Uh, cult is just a, a dynamic that happens in every in-group. And, and cult is, is a, a cheap put-down that we often apply to new religions. So just because something has culty aspects to it, uh, doesn't make it bad, right? Human connection, right? As soon as you form human connection with somebody, you are creating the inevitability that you eventually feel betrayed. And so all the, the joys and benefits that come with human connection and living in community, they're always going to come with downsides, including restrictions on your individual freedom, right? You can't be part of a tight in-group. You can't be part of a cohesive, coherent community without giving up some individual freedom. So it's not like culty is always a bad thing. If we wanted, we could hop on one on Zoom right now, probably in, anywhere in the world. Well, like I London. join a 12-step program just because I like love brandings. And... You know what's funny? <laughs> like, I feel like I, I, I often think how I feel bad for people who aren't in them because they don't have like a program for that a community. way to live. live. Yeah. Like, yeah, because like whenever you're like, oh, my life, this, that, you're going to so how much uh, passes to a 12-step convention? That will depend on, on the cost. But uh, people aren't making money from 12-step programs. 12-step programs aren't accumulating money. They're, they're not investing in property or in stocks. So whatever the cost for a convention pass for a particular 12-step program, that will reflect the, the costs of putting on that convention. Meaning you hear about somebody who has real problems happening in their life, like parents are sick or they're like taking care of like a, si a sick kid or like, you know, they got, you know, losing their house, lost their job. You're just like, oh, my shit's fine. Dude, yeah. this is what I'm saying about the moth. Like, I remember this one meeting in New York at this huge group where a guy got up there and told a story better than anything I've heard on any true crime podcast about, like, some people he killed with his bare hands, like, <gasps> 40 years ago. I'm not kidding. And he was just talking about, like, all this crime and hardship. And I was like, yeah, oh, shit. Wait, Fuck yeah. the man murdered someone and he was not arrested? He was. He, he spent 20 years in jail, including, oh, like, oh, many it years was in after. solitary confinement. Oh, yeah. This was, like, an old dude, like, Irish your... Hell yeah. Okay, so things that are shared in 12-step programs or things that are shared to a sponsor are not legally protected, right? You can be forced to testify them in, in a similar, in a civil lawsuit, or in a criminal lawsuit. Uh, it used to be that you could just share anything in a 12-step program, but now if you, for example, testify to having had some sort of sexual relations with, an, you know, with a minor, that can be used against you. Certainly, if you you know confess to a crime, that can be used against you. So you can be both civilly and criminally prosecuted for anything that you share in a twelve-step program. So if you have committed crimes, may not be a good idea to share them in a twelve-step context. If you are vulnerable to prosecution or lawsuit, you may only want to share them with those who are legally protected from sharing what you say, such as a licensed uh, therapist. Right? There's, no, there's no legal privilege that uh, is conferred by what you share in a 12-step program. Brutal. My people. <laughs> Sweet. Is that you? I'm Irish. I'm New York guy, but also oh, just scary. like, that's a drug. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I'm like, a, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's like, I'm friends with people who are heroin addicts who've yeah. like done terrible shit, but they've all turned their life around and are like of service to other people. And That's like... so cool. I love people who turn their life around. 
I really do. I, you know, sort of like rubberneck at a lot of this language and a lot of these rituals. And, yeah, and, the, and we could dive into yeah, those and, and talk about yeah, all of them. At the same time that I sort of like marvel with wide eyes at the liturgy, I say a lot of AA jargon because yeah. it's so catchy and it really does have profound meaning in it. It works yeah. if you work it. It works if you work it. Let go and let God. Yeah. The reason... Um, I think I would like love an AA meeting is because it's all these people who are like taking action on something. Yeah. And I like love the idea it's, it's of It's a program like, of action. Exactly. And like I used to want to work in policy and because I wanted to like. So I know a lot of people who go to AA when they really belong in a sex addiction program, but they find sex addiction programs so morose, so depressing, so downbeat compared to the celebratory, uh, fun, humorous, you know, positive vibes of AA. So they go to AA to try to deal with their sex addiction. So AA meetings tend to be very upbeat, positive, you know, funny. Uh, sex addiction programs tend to be much more downbeat, you know, pessimistic, you know, hopeless, uh, kind of brutal, uh, discouraging, not, not nearly the uplifting experience typically found in AA meetings. Like work in human rights. <laughs> oh my God, I always forget this about her. <laughs> but then I was like, LOL, like human rights law is fake and policy is really hard to enact. And so I went into something that I could like have actual, like, you know, from start to finish. Like, Dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I could write a joke from start to finish. Yeah. Sometimes comedy can be activism, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I got a six minute chunk on abortion right now that I've been telling for a couple of months and it feels extra important right now. Yeah. I think it's so great that like these people are like taking action on something. Just the fact that they're in the meeting is already like a step in the right 100%. direction. You respect it. Yeah. You can feel like shit. You walk into one of those about halfway through. Yeah. Your shoulders drop. You feel a little bit better. Yeah. You get a little perspective. You stop doing the mental gymnastics in your head about whatever bullshit you were yeah. thinking about and then you're just kind of there and present and then you listen for the next 30 minutes to other people talking and maybe raise your hand and share something what's going on with you some what the That's speaker nice. or leader was talking about i feel like though i would be bad at it because the same way that when i went vegan for two weeks i told everyone i would like go to an amy and i would leave and i'd be like i'm an a <laughs> yeah i, get I it. would like scream it from the mountaintops which, like, is, would be which is part of why you don't say that you're in alcoholics anonymous you would say that you're in a 12-step program okay. or something like that so that if you start drinking again in two weeks people can go well aa clearly doesn't work because right. my friend went and she oh. did it and went out in like two weeks uh, went that's out smart. that's another piece of terminology yeah. when you go out yeah. it means you're not an aa anymore you're drinking you're off the wagon you're but using that's pretty interesting i actually didn't know that that was part of the anonymity that the program doesn't want outsiders to think it doesn't work I think that's part of it. That's yeah. very and, interesting. And it's also because no one person is a spokesperson for yes. 12 step programs. Yeah. Because no one's in charge. So, like, when I'm speaking now, I'm speaking from my own experience of being in it, but I do not speak in any way, shape, and form for any 12 step program. Can you talk a little bit more about the 12 steps and yeah. what was your first impression of them? Uh, first impression is like you just hear people talking about them because you're not doing them yet. So someone would be like, I'm on step four and I got to do this thing and it's scary. And you're just like, what is that stuff? But the one that everyone kind of knows about is like making amends. Yeah, yeah. that's the one I yeah, know. Which is like, so, yeah, seven. <laughs> Has anyone made amends to you ever? No, and they should. <laughs> <laughs> they go in order for a reason. There's a reason that mm -hmm. those ones are later on. You like kind of work your way through them. They all seem scary before you do them. And it's just like anything else. Like the sooner you get them done, once they're done, you're just like, oh, that was it. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. They teach you how to like, learn how to deal with resentment to keep your side of the street clean to you know admit when you're wrong look at who you actually are what are your character defects what mistakes do you keep making like how do you like hope to change to let those things go so you can like move on as a person so you don't drink over those things 
it's basically like figuring out like, oh, these are all the things that I did why I'm an asshole when I drank. And yeah. these are all my triggers of things that I drink around. So like I want to work on letting go of those things. Yeah. The way you like phrase it, it really is like teaching someone how to adult almost. Like it's, it's like almost like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. You know, yeah. where you like are learning how to deal with who you are. And the longer you stay sober, the better. So I knew this one guy who would just, you know, rubbish me, tease me, uh, denigrate me for, you know, anything under the sun, but he would never denigrate or put down my, my 12 step participation. It was kind of amazing that uh, 12 step programs are about the, the, the one part of popular culture and spirituality that are almost never satirized in, in popular culture. I would say that 12 step programs, 90% plus of the time, get a positive, respectful coverage in popular culture. And I assume that's because the producers of popular culture have personally experienced or know someone who's personally experienced the gifts of 12-step programs. It's just amazing the you know, almost unanimity of the, the positive coverage of 12-step uh, programs. Okay, great test match cricket coming up tomorrow between Australia and South Africa. Meanwhile, back to the colder 12-step programs. Better of a view on yourself, you actually get like an honest view of like, oh, this is the kind of person I am. Like, these are the things that I'm afraid of. Yeah. And most people drink around fear or resentment or anger. For sure. Know? You know, it's interesting that you were saying it reminds you of uh, like just adulting and you're like, it reminds me of cognitive behavioral therapy or community therapy, crowdsource therapy. We'll talk more about the therapy element later. It reminds me when you just listen to it on the surface of like the promises that Scientology makes. Oh, the really? difference though is that you absolutely have to abide by Scientology's what they call the bridge to total freedom. That's kind of like their 12 steps, but you don't actually know what the steps are until you get there. I, I wouldn't be shocked if they took some of that stuff. A lot of cults uh, overlap with recovery yeah. programs. The cult my dad was in as a teenager started out as an alternative drug rehabilitation center. Oh, wow. Called Synanon. Scientology has like a like a rehab oh, I'm wing sure. where oh, they like do try not to get go people. there. Anyone listening to this? <laughs> they try to get people in when they're through, weak and down. Yeah. It, it literally like yeah. I mean, addiction is a great thing to exploit if you want to start a cult. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. What happens if you don't do all of the twelve yeah. steps? Or you want to question them? Nothing. Right. That's what I think is like, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, this is like almost anti-cult because there's like no, it's like, it's the cultiest anti-cult yeah, ever. Probably, probably the most culty thing you might occasionally hear in a 12-step meeting is uh, some, yeah, people say, I feel like they're trying to brainwash me in, and then people say, well, maybe your brain needs washing. Oh, that yeah. is culty. Yeah. <laughs> that is. We touched a little bit on like how there's no hierarchy. There's no leadership. There's it's no people leadership. who are in volunteer positions and they're all elected on a like on a group level in a 12 step meeting there will be a person who's the chair who like runs the meeting and that person's the chair for six months and then they're voted out and new people are voted in and all oh, the so there's a time limit on yeah, how often someone six can be months the chair for every position like if you're the person with a coffee commitment you got that commitment for six months and then you're Wait, out that is so interesting because the next question i was going to ask is if there was like a power dynamic between newcomers and old comers no and you try to give newcomers like positions as soon as they walk through the door like Okay. You're new, you want to give them responsibility to like give them something to do, to give them like self-confidence and value in themselves. Do you think that people who have been in the program for longer kind of do it in a way that's like passive aggressive or like is there any, ever any like Every feeling of single... like I'm better than you? No, I wouldn't think so because most people will talk about how the newcomers have the most to bring to a meeting. Because okay. like newcomers will come and they'll talk about the the fucking shit that they just went through to finally get in there. Where like a lot of people who've been in there a long time are just like laughing and having a good time telling stories and like 
a newcomer will talk and they'll be like, yeah, I'm happy they shared about that because I need to remember what it was like when I came in so that I don't go back out. Yeah. I'm curious about the sponsor-sponsee dynamic. Yeah. Because obviously that is so intimate when someone is sort of like shepherding you through your yeah. sobriety. Yeah, you're reading somebody a list of like your character defects or sexual shit that you regret yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can you talk about like what that relationship is like and what I would mean, happen if you didn't like your sponsor anymore and you wanted you to sort of fire him? Oh, you, how does that work? <laughs> I just go, I'm going to, I think I'm going to work with somebody new. Nothing's official. You know, you yeah. don't sign yeah. a contract. What about for people who are like really socially awkward or like don't like confrontation? Like, is there like an established thing in the beginning that everyone. So obviously a sponsor, sponsee relationship is wide open for abuse. So I, I tell my sponsees that you know, sponsors shouldn't be you know, telling you how to live your life. The thing that the sponsor should be doing you is taking you through the big book and sharing with you their experience with the 12 steps. But some people want to look to sponsors for advice on their love life, advice you know, with their family, advice on all sorts of things where the sponsor may have no expertise. So sponsor-sponsee relationship, yeah, is wide open for abuse because people are going to bring all their baggage into that, that relationship. So if if you switch the sponsor-sponsee relationship to one where the sponsor is just primarily taking you through the, the 12 steps and sharing with you their experience with the 12 steps rather than you know, giving you life advice, then I think that's much healthier. So I try to deprogram my sponsees from looking to me for life advice. I try not to give much life advice. And if I do give it, I'd say, look, this is just my opinion. There's, you know, there's no special power I have. The only thing that I insist upon my sponsees is that they be polite, that they show up on time, that they do their 12-step their homework. You know, they don't need to clear anything by me. They, you know, I know some sponsors want their sponsees in the first year of sobriety to clear relationships with them, to clear going on vacation with them, to clear any major decision with them. That's that's definitely not uh, how I approach things. Tells like, hey, if you don't like your sponsor, like you can just leave them and it's no harm, no foul. Yeah, it's just kind of no rules. I mean, there are, there are suggestions and there are the steps that are like the closest things to rules, but they're not even rules. They're suggestions. Yeah. Have you ever heard? Sorry, we're asking them tough I know, questions. I know. Because like, it's like your answers are very healthy. You, I, I, no, I'm, you can I'm, grill me. I'm, I'm just like so curious because I've seen my very close friend have nothing but a positive experience with AA. But I have had some people, a lot of people actually DM us being yeah. like, you have to cover this topic because I had this experience in a 12-step. Yeah, then they probably just went to a shitty meeting and I would suggest going to a different meeting. Word. That's true. There were meetings in LA that you, you couldn't pay me to go to because the people who were in them were fucking nuts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you go and everyone's <laughs> like self-centered and weird and like, yeah, like not really working what I would consider to be like a healthy spiritual program. Yeah. And I don't want anything to do with those people. I go to where I feel like people are grounded, helpful, happy, positive community. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's so important to like remind yourself that these are non-binding meetings yes. of yeah. like random people. Yeah. Who on an individual. So anything that humans do and organize and connect around, of course, is going to be open to the foibles of human beings, the you know, anti-social dysfunctions, you know, the personality disorders, right? There's no human organization that's going to be, you know, exempt from, you know, predatory behavior, right? There's no, like, free pass away from, you know, anything bad happening to you when you connect. Individual level are still going to act individually. Like people. Like people. And, and sometimes so like, people are toxic. Yeah, and so, like... Yeah, especially if a bunch of drug addicts <laughs> and alcoholics. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're not going to... Not everyone's going to be, like... The fairy godmother. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you're not Buddha. You're not, you know, the Dalai Lama. It's like you're, most of us are closer to fucking 
retired rock stars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so anyone who tries to make it seem like they are all knowing is probably just oh, someone you have to that, distance that's yourself really from. Nice. You know, they say when you're looking for a sponsor, look for somebody who has what you want. Look at anybody who's like a clean comedian who pretends to be holier than now, but then in their offstage life is a fucking monster. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like anybody who acts holier than now is like, oh, fuck that person. Yeah. It's a simple program for complicated people. I actually can't tell what would be more culty if 12 step programs had an official leader keeping everything organized and on the books or the setup that exists now where each group is just run by volunteers in a program who are all abiding by its suggestions. I think that kind of speaks to the larger question of how much order versus freedom do we want in any given group? Like what structure lends itself to the least harmful type of cult? It's just an interesting question that I don't think anyone ever has the perfect answer to. In the beginning, or not even that long ago, addiction was seen not as a disease, it was seen as a moral failing. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. connected to the religious aspect too. Yeah. It's like, you need to just find Jesus. Yeah. And so I think AA emerged to fill like this very real need to treat addicts like they were actual humans who were not profoundly defective. But it's just interesting that 12-step programs are like kind of the only mainstream way to go about addiction. Yeah, well, there are other things. There's like smart recovery, which I don't really know much about. And there's like, you know, not all rehabs are 12-step based and stuff like that. There are places you can go and whatever works for you, fucking do it. Like, yeah. if you need to get sober, get sober. You don't got to go to a 12-step program. I know people who are in a 12-step and live in pretty good lives and fucking great. It's just this is what works for me, so I do it. Yeah, weird. yeah. It is like inherently religious. The aspect about confessing, it kind of reminds me of when you like go to church and you, um, what do you, you admit to the dude in the box that you did all this yeah, stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Catholic. I me mean, too. There, there's yeah. something, there's something confessional about going to a meeting and having to sort of lay bare all of your traumas and misdeeds. But you also but it don't have to. Feel better. But you also don't have That's to. That's the other oh, thing yeah. too. You're not required to like participate in any way. Like you don't have to share. You don't have to like talk to anyone else while you're there. You can go and just listen. You don't have to get a sponsor. Literally, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop doing drugs and drinking. Yeah. There's two things when it comes to the science of it. Uh, One, early on, there's this dude. It's in the beginning of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a letter by this guy, Dr. Silkworth, who basically describes, like, the genetic predisposition to alcohol. So that, I think, for a lot of alcoholics is super comforting to know that it's not not a moral failing. I'm not a piece of shit. So, like, I'm dyslexic. And I'm not a piece of shit for being dyslexic. I just have a cognitive brain disorder in the same way that I'm not a piece of shit for being an alcoholic and an addict. We're all pieces yeah. of shit for many other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Irish. Yeah. You know? Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of mine. Yeah. I'm perfect. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, yeah. I also like love the way that you're going about answering our questions. You're like not defensive at all. You're just like, I feel like if it was it's not culty, mine to be defensive. Exactly. Over. Like if it was culty, I feel like you would be getting more like heated. Whereas like you're just like chilling, being like, well, actually, this you can leave whenever you want. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have can to choose a new sponsor. You don't have to do I mean, anything. You can go out and do more research. You can drink whenever and do drugs whenever you want. Yeah. And you're always welcome back. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's I just, want to go. It's hilarious <laughs> because it's like culty and not culty all at the same time yeah. it's structured from a religious program yeah but it's not a religious program it's a spiritual program it really is like if cults were good like <laughs> yeah. honestly like that's the vibe that i'm getting i know how i feel about it too <laughs> yeah there are always going to be people who have a negative experience with any given group but what would you say like if anything are the exit costs of leaving because there's such a profound d- d- right. <laughs> okay. okay there we go but we're getting then, to but it then you said that it's possible to stay sober and live a decent life without, without it being, without i 100% it. think it's possible to stay sober and live a life without so cults can be good but I'm sure there are lots of people who have benefited from Scientology or you know all sorts of other crazy cults or uh, Seventh-day Adventism. I'm sure some people think, you know, Chabad is a cult. It depends on the individual. It depends on the particular qualities of that particular cult at a particular time and place. 
So any in-group is going to have many, many characteristics of, of court. So court is just a pejorative term that we give to new religions and you know, particularly intense in-groups that we don't like. A 12-step program. I just know a lot of people who drank themselves to death yeah. or overdosed on like fentanyl. How does it work if someone is like, oh, I want to leave? Like you guys don't say anything to them. They just nobody shoot. tells you. They just stop coming. Okay. So you might be like, you still might like throw a text like, hey, haven't seen you in a while. How are you? But people ghost you. They disappear. I've had sponsees who've like went. Yeah, I've, I've had friends when I haven't seen them uh, at, at meetings or at uh, synagogue or you know, soccer practice. I say, hey, you know, where are you going? And it's funny, you know, some of them take like great exception to you. You know, you're violating my privacy in essence it's interesting the kind of responses that you get now if you go to a 12-step program for sex addiction or for drugs or alcohol in a major city then pretty much every year there'll be someone in your program who will commit suicide because the addiction has driven them out of out of your mind so there is a sense for Many of us who participate in 12-step programs that to follow one's addiction, whether it's to sex, to you know, extreme forms of, of love, to you know, an addiction to adulation, an addiction to debting, etc., there is you know, a pretty keen sense among people who take their 12-step program seriously that to indulge in this particular addiction is to journey towards death. And on a you know, fairly regular basis, yeah, addicts, who I may have gone to a meeting with a month ago, you know, do sometimes kill themselves, which just kind of drives home how, how serious addiction can be. I, I mean, I think of addiction as a guillotine that's uh, just, you know, above my above my neck and only the maintenance of my spiritual condition right, guarantees that that guillotine is not going to fall down and cut off my head. So I, I don't look at external events as... You know, going to you know trigger me into addiction relapse. You know, I don't think anything outside of me is going to force me to lose my sobriety. You know, I don't walk around afraid of being triggered. You know, I don't have a list of triggers. I don't really believe in in triggers. If you've got substantial recovery, you don't need to be afraid of triggers. You don't need to be afraid of you know external events uh, leading you to relapse into your addiction. If you maintain your spiritual condition, right? If you do. You know, the things that you need to do to stay centered, if you rewire your brain and how you respond to various stimuli, including things and processes that used to lead you to destruction, then you, know, you don't have to be afraid. There are things outside of yourself that are going to lead you to addictive self-destruction. And I've never heard from them again, and I don't know if they're alive or dead. And yeah. That's just how it is. What yeah. if someone does tell you, like, I'm thinking of leaving? Like, is there... I have a friend who's all sober, not in the program anymore. He was like, I don't think it's for me. And it's like, cool. Like, it's just cool. Like, do what you got to do. Like, you're not yeah, trying to convince not, them to stay. No, it's... So, yeah, there are a lot of people in 12-step programs who have stopped going to meetings. They've achieved sobriety in sex and love. They've achieved sobriety with regard to dating or regard to under-earning or with regard to, you know, codependent relationships or alcohol and drugs. They, they've stopped going to meetings, and they're absolutely fine. But some people need to go to meetings regularly, but not everyone, you know, with an addiction has to go to meetings for the rest of their life. So many people, once they you know, get a handle on, say, their sex and love addiction, you know, they get married, they have kids, they make money. One thing I notice with people getting sobriety is they start working a lot. They start working a ton of hours. They may take on multiple jobs. You know, they try to catch up on, on the meat of life that they missed out on 
due to their addiction. So some people just get really busy. If you're working a legal job, doing you know upstanding work, then that's one of the healthiest things you can do. And frequently, just you know going to work is is sometimes a better option for you. Is a more important thing for you to do than to go to a twelve step meeting. They gotta live their life. Yeah. You know, it's not my job to make somebody stay sober. When you look at all president, of the- Jay, I'm the president. <laughs> but it's I funny wish. because when you look at all of the aspects of twelve step programs. It seems motherfucking culty, but every addict I know is this chill about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's not, you know, none of us are in charge of it. Yeah. And it's what works for you and how you work it. How long have you been in a 12-step Nine program? years. Nine years. So I feel like the longer you've been in it, I feel like the more you've seen. You've seen people come in and out. And yeah, so and you the... kind of are indifferent to other people's experiences in that you're like, it's up to everyone. Yeah. And also like my... So I've had you know, 10 years of psychotherapy. I've had... 12 years in 12-step programs and other things I notice is that I can often you know, feel like I'm making progress in my, you know, with my counselor, making progress with my 12-step program. But the most challenging thing is to get back with family, right? I find that my psychological patterns with family, the most ingrained of the roles I, I play vis-a-vis family, you know, are the hardest to break. So, yeah, Christmas, holidays, you know, going, going home, those are the biggest challenges for sobriety. Now, I don't feel particularly challenged anymore. You know, I feel you know, really at ease, grateful, and uh, very happy with my family. But those family dynamics I have found out of all relationship dynamics in my life were the most challenging to change. And you know, Al-Anon in particular has really helped me in my relationships with other people, including with family, one piece of Al-Anon advice that I've adopted is to never give anyone a suggestion more than once to recognize that, you know, everyone's on their own journey, that you can't change other people. I've been able to you know, disengage from, you know, feeling, you know, emotionally turbulent about, you know, what other people's choices are. So Al-Anon, in, in my experience, is the best 12-step program or the best group, best community I know of for getting healthy in your relationships with other people, learning where you and other people begin. Wow. Al-Anon has just just been a a fantastic program for learning to get along with other people in a healthy way, having the best possible relations with other people. Like you realize that for everyone, it's their own individual journey inside of it. Well, we've been mentioning throughout all of the fantastic jargon that exists within yeah, AA. It's sure. all so catchy. The cultiest phrases in 12-step programs for me are are the phrases that they use to get you to sort of like just trust the process. Things like yeah. it works if you work it or when something goes wrong, just like call your sponsor. Or there are phrases like AA is perfect. People are imperfect. AA never fails. People fail the program. Honestly, I don't know if I've ever, ever heard those last two. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure. I have never heard those last two. I've also never seen anyone who's worked the 12 steps who didn't get recovery. Right? I, I've never seen a 12-step program uh, not work for someone who has worked the program. That probably happens. I have not seen it. Everyone I've seen work the 12 steps has had a substantial change for the group. Somebody has said it, you know, but sure. like, that's not like... Anything I ever hear. That's not typical. And also because it's governed by like a board, like no one person, like it's adaptable. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I think they're on their like fourth or fifth version of the big book and things like change. Like right now they're changing their genders in the literature to make it more conformative and inclusive to everybody. 
I think they're going the they them route and doing more of that kind of stuff. We should yeah. all be going that they them route. Yeah, it, it, I know. <laughs> yeah, but that depends on particular meetings. All right, they're not rewriting the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They they may add you know additional chapters on the end, but they're not changing the fundamental text of the the big book and how to recover. So, yeah, different meetings use different forms of jargon. There's no top-down hierarchy or authority that, that can make you know, sweeping changes. It uh, depends on the meeting. So some meetings are more politically correct or you know, lefty-leaning than others. Yeah. I hear it's a beautiful drive. Yeah. yeah. I would normally think that phrases are culty if you're trying to keep someone in a cult. Yeah. But I almost feel like the phrases are more innocent. They're so generic that they could really apply to That's anything. It's like really the cultiest love. thing about them, though. That they're generic. Because, you, because they're like really vague and lofty and emotionally loaded. And so you can just like project whatever you want onto them. You can them. project whatever you want. It works. Or you yeah. can perceive, yeah. Yeah, or you can perceive well, whatever you also, want. Also, I read shit tons of like anything that's like self-helpy. I love anything self-help. You are really in like so many of these live your life to watch your back level cults that we love so much. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's stoic philosophy all day, every I day. I love stoicism. Yeah, I'm a huge stoicism guy. Anyway, there's this book, Building Better Habits, maybe. Anyway, in that they do scientific research on why 12-step programs work and it literally boils down to do you believe this can work for you and the people who do believe that it can work for them it works that's fine with me i let it you know what i mean i don't need to be like question like it works so why the fuck do, would i fuck with it yeah but yeah like you don't care that it's placebo i don't give a shit what it is it makes me a better person i show up for other people i meditate i pray i like do shit i never would have did before i'm not out until six in the morning fucking strangers yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? like it's so much left up to the individual of like you being like i want the help like you choosing yeah. to go in every time. It's like you can't force someone to get sober. Yeah. I actually think it's a lot easier to get someone to keep drinking. Like our whole society is set up for people in the cult of alcohol, you know? Like you drink when you're sad. You drink when you're celebrating. You drink when you're bored. Like drinking culture is the actual death cult here if you think about it. This is a culty one. People who stay in the middle of the pack don't get picked up. What does that mean? So oh. if you stay in the center of a 12-step program, you're less likely to fall off the sides and go out and get drunk because oh. you're like involved. Like if you do... If you go to a rehab center and talk to people who are in rehab, if you go to a uh, mental institution and talk to people. Yeah, that's advice that I've gotten from rabbis and also from sponsors. Like, stay in the center of the pack. You know, go to meetings, connect with other people, go to social events after meetings. Don't separate yourself from the community is a teaching in the Talmudic Tractate, Ethics of the Fathers. So it's a Talmudic teaching. It's a 12-step teaching. Stay in the center of the pack, right? People in the center of the pack are less likely to get picked off by the exigencies of life. Or a prison, or if you have a commitment where you make the coffee, if you, you know, work, volunteer at a phone line, you know what I mean? If uh -huh. you sponsor other people. That if one you is have... culty because it's kind of getting people to get more involved. A hundred percent. But even yeah. though it's better for them. Yeah. And, and, it's and still... also it's like it teaches you, like I was saying earlier, how not to be self-centered. Yeah. To me, that's the best thing I've gotten yeah, from Yeah, I just keep picturing you being like, and then there's the chip that they put in my arm to track me, but it's no big deal. That only happens after three months. I mean, months. they don't get the fucking money for that. Yeah. They're so broke. Truly, do you think that you were able to get there because you, like, had all of those experiences that, like, led you, and now you can be like, well, I had my fun. I do not regret my past or wish to shut the door on it is okay. one of those things. Oh, my it's God, like, it's truly, like, Bible verses. Yeah, where it's yeah. like, I don't regret any Peace of that. All. It gives me the experience to share with that perspective I find so incredibly helpful. I, I didn't regret the, the past because I have been abused you know, by crazy decisions and crazy actions in the past to be of service to other people. And also another perspective from outside process programs I found really helpful is given who I was at a particular time, I could not have acted uh, differently. So 
when we live in the present, we think, you know, how much freedom we have in our choices. But when we look back on our past, we have much more of a sense of, of fate. So I, I regret very little, right? I don't live in regret. Yeah, I've made a lot of terrible decisions, embarrassing decisions, but I, I don't feel very much regret over them. I don't think I evince very much regret over them. So people often ask me, do you regret X, Y, Z? And the answer is no, I, I don't spend much time in regret. I used to spend a lot more time in regret and that didn't make me happy. So wherever I am, whatever status I am in life or whatever geographic location or whatever group I'm hanging out with, I just put on those rose-colored glasses trying to focus on what's good about the situation I'm in and to not not spend a lot of time you know, focusing on what's bad. Other people, to relate to other people who've been through hard shit who like do drugs and Do you think that drink. that's a barrier to entry though? Because like some, like no, to I know have people... to have gone through, like no, I, I've never, I fucking never crashed a car in my life. I never got a DUI. Yeah. Technically on paper, I'm what some people might consider a low bottom drunk outside of the fact that like I would stay out and drink until four or five in the morning. My friend too got sober fairly young and you could argue that she's not like a real alcoholic, but nobody does argue that. Yeah. If you feel like you're supposed to be there, then you're welcome. Yeah. It doesn't matter. There's cool. no. I need a safe space and it sounds like yeah, 12 step programs are we really should go. Safe. It's actually fun. They actually have one at yeah. a place where I go to an open mic also, but it's like also an A. <laughs> yeah. Some uh, 12 step places are safe spaces, but. No group, you know, no human institution, you know, nobody is totally safe, right? The safety is, you know, perfect safety is an illusion, right? There'll always be people with predatory instincts, particularly in certain situations. So there's no perfect safe space, but, you know, overall, I've had a very positive experience with 12-step programs, 12-step meetings, 12-step uh, sponsors. Uh, but also through these meetings and programs, I've matured and so I'm better able to detect when someone's dangerous. In general, good people make you feel good. That bad people make you feel bad. If someone's making you feel bad, good reason to distance yourself from that person, put up uh, barriers and you can do it you know, subtly. You don't have to say, I can't have you in my life. You can reduce the proximity of yourself and the other person. You can reduce the intensity of your interactions. You can reduce the frequency of the interactions, right? You can move things from face-to-face -to, -face to just over the phone. You can, you can do all sorts of things to put more space between you and others without making you know, dramatic demonstrations. On the other hand, if there are people who are good for you, who make you happy, who have a good influence on you, then you can increase the intensity. You can increase the proximity. You can increase the frequency you can increase the length of time that you spend together. And then people who are bad for you, you reduce the amount of time you spend together, you reduce the proximity, you reduce the frequency, you reduce the intensity. That's it for me for now. Take care. Bye-bye.